in a world with abundant food, fasting, restraint, self-discipline, that's the mm -hmm. medicine. In a world with infinite scrolling dopamine, the person who unplugs the, gets off the bird app, that's the, the power. In a world with drugs everywhere, sobriety is actually the medicine. I love what you said, Brandon. And I do think we have come full circle and uh, we basically agree on all the heavy furniture here. And in the modern world of instant dopamine hits and all this stuff, sobriety and the ability to not look at a screen or to be intoxicated for a prolonged period of time is unbelievably healthy and something that most people could never help hope for because they just want another pill to fix it. And psychedelics is going to become that. You're listening to The Wake Up Podcast with Alex Fetsky, the place where the most dynamic thinkers and practitioners in the world drop truth bombs and contrarian viewpoints to help you become the best version of yourself. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of the Psychedelic Series. And on this episode, I've got Brandon Quidden with me from Swan Bitcoin. And I've got Lex, aka Grassford Bitcoin, aka Bitcoin Mechanic from Start9 Labs with me. And this one is a fantastic continuation of the series because you've got two guys who have had a load of experience with psychedelics, one taking the against, one taking the four, and me kind of trying to play the line, but you know, probably being a little bit more on the against side. We, we touched on some really interesting ideas here and particularly the piece about like, why do people do psychedelics? There's the hedonist, uh, the hedonistic reason. There's the enlightenment, uh, reason or there's the medicinal reason. And I think you guys will find a lot of value in how we try and push back, particularly on the medicinal stuff, um, and on the enlightenment, um, kind of like, you know, shortcuts to wisdom, which I, I think this was a fantastic conversation. We, we came to an interesting middle ground and yeah, hope you enjoy the show. I am actually about to go and record number three now with Thomas Strolight and, uh, and Will Spencer. So that's going to be a fantastic show. But for now, enjoy part two of the psychedelic series. Drop me a line on Fountain. I just figured out that I can actually reply to you guys in the messages in there. So if you've got any questions, comments, just drop me a line there and let's have a conversation about this. Thank you so much. See you on the next episode. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having us the awkward silence when you have two people. It's fucking great. <laughs> this is, it's a never-ending problem for me. Dude, it's me and Mark because we do um, podcasts together for Uncommunist Manifesto. It's always that, like people introduce us and then there's the awkward silence for a second. Like, uh. So what we've kind of learned to do is like defer to um, to Mark. I just defer to Mark as the old guy. I'm like, you know, age before beauty. Um, so anyway, let's... um. Let's let's kick this off just really 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 briefly. Um, I guess for 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 setting the frame, each of your two minute background with um, you know with psychedelics. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to start. Um, before I start uh, opening up the floor to some questions that I have that I'd, I'd I'd want you both to sort of answer. So, Brenda, maybe we'll kick off with you, and the mechanic will go to you. Yeah, sure. So I first stumbled across psychedelics right after I graduated college. So this is about 2010. And initially it was just for fun. And I was trying all the classical psychedelics, like more as a young 20 experimenter. Um, and then I started reading more about these. The topic became fascinating. I probably spent 
I don't know, close to 10,000 hours on the topic in my 20s. Um, I found it, I felt like I discovered a new secret. And at the time I was a militant atheist, my experiences with psychedelics sort of softened that stance. And I came to the conclusion that I shouldn't be so confident in my opinions. Um, there's a lot more out there than what meets the eye. Maybe humans can't even comprehend everything. So it was a very humbling experience. Um, it gave me a lot of insight into my own personality, uh, my faults, how I show up in the world. I would, I would say context or perspective is probably the shortest way I can describe it, where I can be a douchebag in certain ways. And it would be hard for me to observe that on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I would get gobsmacked by a handful of mushrooms and realize that, okay, yeah, you feel good about yourself, but you're, you're missing something. So work on this, work on that. Um, similar, I, I don't consider MDMA a psychedelic, but same, same time period experimented with that. Um, also a lot of transformation there with empathy and realizing I don't have to be hard on myself all the time. Um, I grew up in a strong father household where, you know, there's no crying in baseball. There's no excuses, you know, get your good grades, get your shit done on the court, et cetera. And so a lot of pressure, which I still carry today. And I think that pressure on myself, I'm okay with, I use it as a tool today, but those around me, um, I can be really hard on and have high expectations. And that doesn't work so well in a romantic partner situation or friends that are a little bit softer. And so I've had to sort of rein that in. Um, now let's say 12 years after I first started messing around with these things, I use it more infrequently. Um, I would say one or two times a year, usually almost always by myself, higher doses to um, just as like a psychological reset, as a reconnect with myself, clear out the junk type maintenance. And I also use them occasionally for fun. Um, we're at Burning Man with friends and we're going to stay up all night riding our bikes around looking at art. And we want a little LSD to add to the experience. And so just putting my flag in the ground for the personal development side, which I think is the most important, or you could also say spiritual, but also just simply for having fun and laughing with your friends. Um, I think that that's an entirely uh, useful way to use these tools. There's no guilt behind that. There's no shame behind that. Um, yeah. So th that's probably okay. good enough to start. Noted. Noted. Mechanic, over to you. Hey, so I guess we're just going over history for now. Um, no, out. not even, not even, yeah, not even too long history. Like I think just, um, you know, your, your first interaction with, um, psychedelics and kind of your position now. So, you know, not, not super long. Um, so, uh, wow. Amazingly, I can't actually remember the first time I did something like this. Um, but I think I probably, I think my first experience with psychedelics was doing a shitload of DMT, which is great because that's going straight for the jugular and it made everything else afterwards like acid and uh, 2CB or whatever the hell just seemed like a joke in comparison. When I finally took acid after having taken DMT a few years prior, the best way you could take it as well, save injecting it. Um, I thought, what's this? This is a joke. LSD is an absolute joke. That's what I thought because of how strong DMT was. Um, and DMT changed everything. Uh, there was life before DMT and life after DMT. Um, how eventually I got to the position I have now where I tend to discourage the use of them. Um, but I, I want to put like eight asterisks after that. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to elaborate my position further. I don't, I'm, I'm really hesitant to even say I'm against psychedelics. Um, uh, or, and I like the way this is being framed as more of a discussion than a debate. 
because I'm not really going to strongly push for something here. It's because I'm fundamentally my um, my ideology leads me to wanting people to make the best possible decisions they can make for themselves, which requires having as much information as possible going into it, rather than me saying something is rather than me prescribing something to people. I'm trying to say this is what they do. And there's so much hot air and noise and bullshit around psychedelics that I just want to cut through some of the noise and tell people what's actually reasonable and what isn't. Um, Cause you know, you've got the Tim Leary's and people like that coming out telling people they can meet God and all these things. And uh, you know, Hunter S Thompson describes it just beautifully uh, when he, he says all these pathetically eager acid freaks that thought they could buy a consciousness for three bucks a pill. Uh, what about all the lives we leave? What about all the people we disappoint? What what happens when they become disillusioned? Did we ever think about these things? And, uh, you know, that's the problem with overselling stuff, right? Or just going to mm -hmm. counteract a narrative of nonsense that comes from the intelligence agencies and people that are just knee-jerk afraid of it that don't really know anything and don't want to acknowledge mm -hmm. that these are powerful tools and that are there's totally a valid use case for them as well. So um, it, it's fucking complicated and nuanced. And yeah, that email you sent out with all the topics you want to discuss, if we get through half of it, I'll be stoked. Awesome, 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 awesome. Okay, thank you for that frame. So let's let's just start with uh, with this. Um, Brendan, were you going to say something? Yeah, can I piggyback off that quick? Um, I think this is an important topic on evangelism. Um, and I, well, I think what's going to be really funny about this conversation, I'm predicting it, we're going to be on opposite poles and we're going to end up right next to each other at the end. Because I more or less agree with everything you just said. Um, I'll frame it like this. As Bitcoiners, there's that period where you finally see the light and you feel like you discovered the secret. It's really important and you want to tell everyone. So you become this evangelist and you think you're doing something great, but everyone else looks at you like a raving lunatic. So if you're smart, that evangelist stage is short and you sort of like to take a step back. Um, same with psychedelics. In my early 20s, I thought they were the sacrament from God on high to change the world. Everyone should have them. And as I became a little more mature in these thoughts, I realized that that's a horrible idea. Um, I watched, uh, let's say, the psychedelic people in my life become not all, but oftentimes become like full of themselves. And they would get a message in an experience that said, you're God and you're this reincarnation of, of Alexander the Great and all the self-delusion. And so, you know, you can't believe everything you think, uh, that type of thought. And so I think the frame with Huxley versus Leary is perfect right here, where, as you mentioned, Timothy Leary said, everyone should do this. We should literally dose the water supply so everyone in the world has LSD tomorrow, and then the world will be a magical, but beautiful place afterwards. And on the opposite end of that debate is Aldous Huxley, who from the UK, an intellectual, high class family, kind of an aristocrat kind of guy. But he started dabbling in psychedelics. And his view is that we should be giving these tools to the artists, the creatives, the intellectuals, the people who can handle this type of wisdom and allow those people to sort of be the vanguard of culture, take the lessons and then distribute them to culture. And I'm way, way, way more on the Huxley side. Um, they're not for everyone. They should be treated with reverence. And so, yeah, I just think that's a good poll to, to use. Yeah, that's a great Absolutely. Poll. I actually, I like that framing as well. Um, you know, th there is, there is some, um, maybe while we're here, just really quickly, does anyone know of, and I'm not familiar with this, but there's, I've seen in some circles of people that I respect um, that, you know, they've have a problem with Huxley and kind of, 
uh, feel like he's part of, um, you know, a crew or a group that was uh, in f- full globalism and, and things like Is it, are, you, are any of you familiar with any of that shit or? I, I have a loose grasp. So uh-huh. it's, it's actually crazy. And I need this fact check. So treat this with a big grain of salt, but essentially Huxley wrote 198, uh, sorry, Brave New World in the fifties and, or the forties or fifties, I think it was 55 anyways. And his brother, which, which is essentially a warning against uh, a totalitarian state. Okay. It's against mm-hmm. central planning. It's for individuals. Then Huxley's brother um, took, this is, I'm near, I'm editorializing. He saw those ideas, which was a warning. And then he went and said, oh, this is a great idea. We should definitely centrally plan the economy and look at how easy it is to manipulate people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then his family, um, I think he's a Rothschild and someone else. That's who his parents are. So deeply ingrained. And that's where the conspiracy or the concerns come from. And his brother went on to either create the UN or be a founding uh, member of that type of movement. And so it's mm-hmm. almost like the good and the bad brother under one household. And I actually mm-hmm. believe Huxley is on team freedom, team individualism, um, even though he's kind of mixed up in that, where I think his family is not. And he actually wrote a book, Brave New World Revisited, which he wrote after 1984. I think it came out in the 70s or the 80s. And in that book, he took a retrospective. It was a great book. Okay. You read that. Yes. Amazing yeah. book about yeah. individualism versus central planners and, and the, the concerns here and how we need to make sure society is protected from the tyranny of, of the central planners. And so all that added up. I think mm-hmm. he's on our team, but you know, I can't be certain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you know anything about that or not really? No, not really. I haven't read much Huxley beyond um, Brave New World, which is, I mean, I could see that in two frames, really, which is it's just the work of genius and absolute perfect insight, or he was around a bunch of people that were orchestrating the world becoming that and therefore just decided to do a, hold up a little mirror to it and wasn't actually insightful at all. But, you know, it's like if your brother was found in the UN, uh, or, you know, we've put a bunch of asterisks next to that, but if your brother was found in the UN and you wrote Brave New World, I, w- I would be less impressed, put it that way. <laughs> as we said, we don't even know if it's <laughs> true or not. Uh, I yeah, also yeah. the island as well. And something about the island uh, reeked to me of um, of just sort of divorced from reality. What aboutism when it comes to, you know, every child has 20 parents and that's isn't it better than the traditional models we all have? I guess, I mean, they were still shaking off the 1950s, right? And I'll... You know, everything I know about the fourth turning and that uh, perspective comes basically from the article you wrote, Brandon. Um, but, uh, and you know, uh, referring, to, I'm referring to the fact that you had the stifling culture of the 1950s and everything in the 60s being so much a reaction to that. Uh, it, that's what I'm commenting on here rather than the use of and discovery of psychedelics. But, um, people uh, were just throwing off old values. And, you know, you have these, uh, I don't want to make the slippery slope argument exactly, but, you know, you have the memes today, which is like, you know, the train coming along, smacking a school bus out of the way. It's like, we just want you to bake our cake. Pregnant men, you know, just absolutely just going as ridiculous as possible, uh, you know, divorced from reality. And so you get these notions of uh, family structures and things like that that really aren't about to work for any child anytime soon. And it, it might sound nice on paper and you could definitely dream it up if you're, you know, just conjuring up 
beautiful things in your imagination and you're intoxicated at the time and inspired by the whole thing, but it can be totally unrealistic. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I was left with after the island. How about Doors of Perception? Did you read that one? No. No. Not, I not think that, that, that be yeah, that one's short. You can read that in one, one hour, but it's, it's Husky retelling his first experience with mescaline um, in his beautiful poetic, insightful way. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Also yeah. where the doors got their name from. Yeah. For mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let's, let's, um, let me, let me switch gears here with a question for both of you. Um, for, for each of you, Brandon first, what's the purpose of taking or consuming psychedelics? Yeah, I think depending on where, which, which version of me you ask, you get a different answer. If I'm in my 20s, I'm just mm -hmm. exploring. Um, I'm in my 30s now. I have a young child. I'm married, etc. So now it's like time away, connect with myself, um, uncover, uncover all the things I'm missing and, and try to rebuild my life in a better way afterwards. Um, and so I view it from a more personal development side, um, less spiritual, but also somewhat spiritual um, yeah, that, that's how I would answer it from a society standpoint. I think that's another, I think that's actually a more interesting question. Like I think mm -hmm. as society changes, especially in modernity, we've evolved our culture way past our biology. And so we look around and our hopes, fears, desires, et cetera, which were forged hundreds of thousands of years ago in a, in a totally different context, um, are sort of out of place in modern society. And we fight it, we resist it. You know, we're the only animal that's overweight in the history of time. Uh, we have all these mental diseases, all this um, afflictions of modernity, of, of uh, you know, being too good at surviving or something like that. And I think psychedelics fit really nicely in today's context because it strips away all the cultural baggage. It puts you on your ass. You're a monkey playing in the grass, blissed out, and you can't believe just awestruck by the universe. And I think experiences like that are really important in today's society. Everyone's addicted, everyone's neurotic and diseased and of, of the mind. And I think this is a cleansing tool for that, as long as you can handle it, as long as you do that uh, with reverence. And so I, I view it sort of as an antidote um, to a lot of our modern woes. Now that doesn't mean take the drug, you're good to go. No, 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 that's a catalyst. That's, a, that's an opportunity to uh, make a shift in your life. That's an opportunity for insight. But at the end of the day, it's about altered traits not altered states. I forgot who I stole that from, but it's a great line. Um, and so <laughs> it's about integrating what you learn. It's about using that to be a better person, to change those, your, your life and those that you love around you. Um, <laughs> and I think by and large, psychedelics used with intention uh, result in pro-social behavior, kindness, self-sacrifice, sharing, empathy, courage, uh, focus on the important things, um, treat your body right, treat your environment right. And I think at a mass scale, I think that that's a really powerful catalyst. Okay, let me let me dig into that mechanic before I throw this over to you. I want to stick with this thread with Brandon. Is um, would you agree that psychedelics generally make people more open-minded than closed-minded? Yeah, statistically, that's very very. That's one of the things we know for sure. Okay. Okay. Um. So, do you think there's a danger of um? Yes. Too much open-mindedness. Yeah, 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 of course. Too much open-mindedness. And I've seen this all the time with like the digital nomad traveling, Bali, psychedelic, hippie, hippie, you know, yeah. Koh Thailand type folks. 
which I've dabbled in quite a bit in my life. Um, they're aimless. Everything's relative. They're floating in the abyss. Nothing else matters. Um, it, it's not effective, right? How are you going to cross the road with a head full of LSD? Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that the tool you can go too far and, you know, you become a bliss junkie and it's about the peak experience itself, not about the insights and the action you take. And I think that's a mistake and it leads a lot of people into a trap. And uh, yeah, I think, I think we can all agree that um, there's, there's almost a straw man level of just abuse and irresponsibility with which people can do these things. Uh, I think we're all going to agree on that. So, so quickly, mm-hmm. that it doesn't really bear talking about that much. It's, mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. it's, more, the sort of, it's more the, uh, I guess a more casual user, but I don't, I refrain uh, from using the word casual because it can be done very seriously, but I guess infrequent is what I'm trying to say. Like the intentioned, frequent, uh, infrequent and responsible user. That's the position I'd really like to debate most because it's, uh, that's the, that's the steel man argument really for psychedelic use. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. I have some trauma. I'm, you know, I'm 45 years old. I've got three kids, a steady job. There's something wrong with me. Like I'm going to go and see the shaman and hang out for a month or something like that and try and improve this condition. That's the one I'd really like to debate because that's where I found myself in. Um, and the one even now I'm saying, I don't think it's really uh, doing what I hoped it would do. And from, and everyone I met there trying to do the same thing, I think it ended up turning out to be, it always ends up, or in so many instances, it ends up being an indulgence rather than a genuine um, uh, a call to some sort of action and um, something that um, was well, is definitely justifiable if you're in a position where you have hardcore responsibilities and you're taking a long time away from them. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't I don't mean to go off on too much of a tangent there. No, 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 that's 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 really good. That's really good. I think. Um yeah, as you said at the outset, there's. I think we're all going to agree. The you know the the moron hippie is is a moron and is a hippie, and he's you know as Brandon said, he's like focusing on 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 the bliss, and and that's that's totally true. Like where where I was going to kind of head with that is um is kind of the cost of uh of open mindedness. You know, I I actually my my position my point was actually going to be um whether the world today is suffering from a, from a problem of uh, liberalism or conservatism um, in terms, and, and not from a, not in the political sense, in a behavioral sense, um, you know, have, have we collectively become way too liberal um, and way too accepting? Like what, when uh, Valis and I were talking yesterday, I kind of said, you know, we went from, uh, you know, the sixties hippie revolution, everyone taking LSD to like, you know, excessive acceptance basically to the, um, to the participation award at school, um, to transgenderizing our children very quickly, um, you know, in, in sort of a span of 40, 50 years. And, and that kind of, that excessive liberalization acceptance and, and Brandon, you said that the relativism um, is, I think, you know, quite a dangerous uh, outcome from, you know, this, these kind of substances being uh, basically the Overton window being pushed towards the normalization of the use of these types of substances. Um, whether as, uh, I mean, even, you know what, recreational is probably even fucking better than uh, the use of them as tools of fucking enlightenment, honestly. Um, because at least 
recreational is like you're out there and you're going to fucking get smashed and have fun. Like, I'm not trying to get enlightened. I'm not trying to meet God. I'm not trying to do anything. I just want to fucking have some fun. And you know what? That's probably more moral than, um, than going, trying to solve your problems, um, you know, using the substances. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of get, getting that out there. Um, maybe uh, unless either of you have a comment on that, maybe we can dig into what mechanic uh, brought up. I got, I got a comment on that actually, because we're going to keep going down two parts all the time here. And it's good to know which one we're on because there's the individual and then there's what our society promotes and celebrates. Mm -hmm. in and like, this is a very important point to make because if you're, if you're a dude and you feel the need to, you know, have walk around in a dress and, you know, have estrogen therapy or whatever and grow boobs, I totally support your right to do that as an individual. And if you're grown up and you've, and you're obviously lucid and you're just, and intelligent and you just want to do that that's what you're into i'm absolutely fine with that and support it but when society at large celebrates it then it destroys everything because most people just can't handle that kind of responsibility and don't think about what they're doing and they just mindlessly follow trends which is why china can push certain algos and tiktok for other countries and destroy their entire youth in about a generation and deprive their own country from it where they still celebrate more traditional masculinity and gender roles and you know that's literally how you destroy the west is just by doing these tiny little actions and so psychedelics is the same thing right like i never ever want it to come across as something where on uh as an individual i would deny your right to do it or even your own intelligence about what's best for you but my point is that more the the area where i get uh skittish about the whole thing is when you have a society at large celebrating it and it becomes toler tolerated and accepted, mm -hmm. I think that on balance is way more harm than good because people fundamentally actually can't handle that much responsibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's a, it's a sad truth. Like, but I mean, we can debate that, but this is kind of where the, the, the line comes for me. So if, mm -hmm. if an individual comes to me and says, do DMT. I want to go and climb Mount Everest, and so on. I'm be like, that could be the, one of the best things you ever do in your life. It really could. But I'm saying that because I know you, and I know how old you are, and I know what position you're in, and I know that you're not being reckless, and I know that you're not fucking old. like your kid's not in the hospital with cancer right now. You can actually afford to do that. Like, but no, like most people aren't unique and special, uh, and individual and independent enough in their thought to be able to handle that. So. Yeah, I just wanted to make that point quickly and then I think we should return. Such a fucking good point. Such a fucking good point. Brandon, did you have a comment on that? Or oh, no, I agree. I, I think we're kind of circling back to the fact that responsible use and the right person, this is a, a, a useful tool, not always. And you still have to be skeptical of what you learned, right? Um, but outside of that context, it can be a problem. And I think the pleasure seeking, hedonistic, whatever angle. Uh, I fully support that. I, I, you know, I think sometimes the best medicine is drink a bottle of wine with your best friend, get drunk and laugh and like, just take the backpack of responsibility of life off for the night. Um, and so I, I feel the same with psychedelics. I don't agree with your point earlier that that's necessarily more morally just than using them for some intentional purpose. Um, I think that there is tremendous fruit to be had there. Um, but it's not straightforward. It's paradoxical. It requires work. Um, sometimes you, you're fed lessons that deceive you and you go down uh, an incorrect path. 
And I think the the reality is that um, spiritual insight or connection to the God or the universe or whatever, that that's a deep fundamental thing inside of humans. We've been pursuing that sense as far back as we can look. And the more we learn, the further back that goes. And so there is some sort of a religious impulse or uh, whatever we want to call that. And I don't think that that's something we should run away from. I think that's something we should embrace. But if you look throughout history, I don't think there's ever been a time where psychedelics were mass distributed. And I think it goes back to the point you made yes. earlier, Mechanic, which is that it, it's not for the masses. Um, most people want a, a master. Most people want to follow. Um, and most people do not want the responsibility of seeing all your faults and the issues in the world. And then the responsibility to wake up on Monday morning, chop wood, carry water, and do the hard work to figure your shit out. And so... Yeah, I think they should be treated as sacraments to the right people. Um, I think what's interesting in modernity, and I'll even take the, the 60s forward, is that in the 60s, there's no traditions behind these things. They were young uh, children of baby boomers who were extremely privileged, and they pushed back on the culture of their parents of the 50s because there was no soul. And then the pendulum swung way out of control, free love, move to the farm, you know, everyone do the drugs and you're going to be enlightened. And that was an epic failure from a society level, right? It escaped tradition. It, it escaped the, uh, the structures around these things, which ancient man had, again, as far back as we can look. Modern Christianity is most likely a derivative of an original psychedelic potion passed throughout generations. And Anyways, I just think that we should embrace the fact that it's ingrained in our biology, but put the framework on it to optimize for the, the maximum amount of, of positive and reduce the negative. Yeah, I want to uh, um, respond to a lot of that. There might be a point there where I finally disagree quite strongly. So, um, but first off, I'll say that um, we already have Svetsky here, right? And we've got the absolute maximum amount of contempt represented in, for the masses <laughs> in Svetsky. Uh, we all know that, which is great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank so you. <laughs> I can backpedal from that a little bit and say that uh, it's a valid heuristic to trust other people with their own conclusions if that's just a topic you're not that interested in. So it's not necessarily that you're a moron mass person because you're you know, buying some Ethereum because someone told you to or something like that, because you might be an expert in another field, right? And you're just not particularly interested in money for whatever reason. And you're just listening to people that you assume know better than you. And um, so the fact that that can and does happen isn't even necessarily that contemptible in people because people don't necessarily have the time to investigate everything fully and figure out everything from first principles because there just isn't the fucking time, right? So this happens with medicine. And this is um, something that I think uh, where it does start to get a bit contemptible, actually, because pretty much we've realized that the entire medical establishment is more corrupt than any of us could possibly have imagined. It's so bad, and especially where I live in Canada. As far as I'm concerned, every single doctor or any medical practitioner at all, whether it's someone working at a, pharmac a pharmacy or something like that, any single one of them that was worth anything has quit or been fired for not being vaccinated. And uh, so I have no trust in it whatsoever. Not that I even had much trust before. And the thing with psychedelics becoming a celebrated and uh, validated thing in society is that it gets the kind of hug of death. It gets the, the stamp of approval from the state. And then that causes a lot of people to engage in this or, or make use of this 
somewhat uh, valid heuristic of this is medicine. I'm not a doctor. What do I know? I, I'm, a, I'm a car mechanic. I fix cars or I do whatever I do. When I'm sick, I go and see this guy. Oh, I'm having mental health problems. I'm going to go and see this guy. He's going to prescribe me some acid or some mushrooms or something like that. And this this becomes another form of medicine. And medicine is just so, uh, the ability to corrupt medicine, we've seen how bad that is. And this is where um, I'm probably not going in a predictable direction with this at all, but this is where I think psychedelics actually benefit on, on net because they are illegal. And this is for the same reasons I'm always pushing for Bitcoin to become illegal, because when you legalize it, everyone starts using it in stupid ways. And there's no way to force people to have any responsibility uh, unless you make the thing illegal. And then they have to approach the thing uh, like it needs to be approached. They have to start verifying the sources of it themselves rather than just mindlessly eating the food that comes in packages that are stamped as being fine for humans to eat, even though they're full of poisonous chemicals. Um, you know, and that's what 90% of food is. The government says it's okay to eat it, so they stamp it, and you eat it without thinking, and then you realize, hold on, I've got I've got a responsibility to myself to figure out what I actually can eat and what I can't eat. But the, the pragmatic reality is people just don't that often. If the government comes along and says it's fine, then people stop checking things. So legalized cannabis is a, an interesting one because cannabis isn't what it used to be. Cannabis is insane now. You have one puff and that's it. You practically check yourself into the funny farm for three days. That's not what cannabis used to be at all. It's uh, I saw um, Paul Volt Dream, uh, Dread, um, a big Bitcoiner, saying strong weed ruined weed, which uh, and he's a you know an authentic Rastafarian, right? And he's he says this is not what the drug is. This is not what any of us were celebrating initially, but, and now it's something that's pushed by the state. It's something that was in in Canada. Everything was shut down. All non-essential businesses that didn't include cannabis stores, right? So, the government is very explicitly telling you cannabis is essential. You need this. In fact, you can stay open during a time where we think opening a store is enough to kill everyone. You can stay open, even though this drug was illegal a couple of years ago. That tells you something, right? And the fact that people's perception of it changes to the point where people are just getting high all the time, they're just smoking weed all the time, and it's it's not weed that we even have known for very long. Like it's a new chemical, essentially. It's having new effects on us. And this kind of recklessness, I'm like, can you imagine um, the power the psychedelic drugs have, which makes them just something you have to have 10 times more respect for? Can you imagine that becoming something that is celebrated um, and encouraged, you know? It's just, it doesn't even bear thinking about just knowing what you know about people and the way they approach stuff. It's it, basically my default advice for you is, you know, with a tiny little caveat of these things are potentially the best things ever in the world. They are the biggest gift to humanity for your, uh, for your psychological development and your ability to have honest introspection. And with that put to the side, if you ever ask me, should I take it? My default answer is going to be no, run away. <laughs> Brandon, I see you've got something to say. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting perspective on the medical side and, and the risk of state co-opting co this tool. And I'm, I'm as worried of the state putting their fingers on anything uh, as anyone is. Um, and I sort of see three paths just to frame this and I'll add, get my point. There's the recreational use. It's hedonism. It's pleasure. It's indulgence. Then there's the personal development or spiritual. It's intention, whatever. Um, I think that was an interesting point you made earlier about 
uh, critiquing that. And then we have the medical path. Okay, this is the new path. The old, the old psychedelic warriors, hippies, evangelists, whatever, like uh, Doblin, etc. These guys are they believe in these as tools. They want more people to have them. They don't want it to be illegal. So they go down the medicalization route because that's the most, uh, pro- most efficient way to get these legalized. So we have psilocybin, we have MDMA. Um, they'll both be legal. I'm sure in the next five years, if not sooner. Um, and they're used for, for things right now, at least that are incurable or intractable, like, uh, severe depression, end of life fear, like you have terminal cancer, uh, PTSD, addiction, things like that, stuff that we can't solve today. And the results of these studies are actually very, very, very promising. And I think it's hard to argue against that. If someone has no other option here, take the bazooka and turns out it works. Um, for example, the Johns Hopkins study, which is not about any of these diseases, they gave psilocybin to uh, students in seminary school. So religious students got loaded on mushrooms and then went to mass. And they they view that they met God. This was a, a profound thing. Um, normal people rate it as their top five experiences or the number one most meaningful experience of their life, even a decade later. Right. So they have profound effects and, and for the positive in many cases. Um, but let's say we go down the medical path a decade from now. Do we really think the state is going to support a, a technology that I view as a sovereign? Uh, it creates sovereign individuals, I believe. It deprograms your mind from culture. It deprograms your mind from state. Um, not always, but I think that that's on average what happens. It, it makes you think for yourself and, and not be so uh, easily manipulated. But if we fast forward a long time, I do believe the medical state uh, will use this as a tool for their own benefit. They can't help, the state cannot help itself, but to uh, absorb more power. And I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful of these things being only a medical tool behind closed doors. I, I prefer the decentralized basement, <laughs> honestly, backyard shaman uh, over to pure medicalization. But I don't think we can throw it away. No, for sure. A couple. Hold on. Let me. Gonna, okay, go, go, go. I've got okay. something in me that I've got to get out regarding that. When something becomes legal, it becomes a different thing. And Bitcoin is the perfect example of this and something that just no one really uh, talks about, I find. Like, we, we have Bitcoin. We know what it is. When I'm talking about early days, I'm talking about the cypherpunk idealists and all these great things that it can become in potential. And then you have legal Bitcoin, which comes later, which is arguably the worst possible thing. It's just a manifestation of a kind of CBDC. It's people having no respect for their own privacy, uh, in, submitting themselves to all sorts of KYC practices, uh, even buying fake paper Bitcoin, things like GBTC. And all of these are so far, they're pre- pre- pretty much the polar opposite. Like we talk about crypto being the polar opposite of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin used in the wrong way is just as bad with a bunch of illusions that aren't even true. Like all, everything becomes just a, a LARP, like 21 million and all these things. How do you know that if you're not running a node and if you're not using and if you're not doing self-custody? And this is the problem, right? Bitcoin becomes thoroughly denatured when the state gets involved and the state approves of it because then the state, this is why governments never make Bitcoin illegal and it's why it's such a stupid fear because illegality would do would mean that this is, it would get the same benefit that psychedelic drugs do, which is that it's all bro science. Everything when it comes to psychedelics is bro science. This is, you you go to places you trust and you speak to people who you think 
have a valid point and that you actually want to learn from, rather than just read endless studies that come from sources that you shouldn't be trusting, but you kind of trust them anyway. And this is what happens. This is how they've ruined medicine, right? Because there's no, you can cure so many diseases with stuff that there's just no profit in, uh, but there's no, there's no marketing going into that. There's no study happening on those things. Mm -hmm. in it. So instead you get these stupid, like we all know you can cure COVID with some pretty trivial out, you know, generic drugs, but instead you've got Paxlovid, right? And everyone's pushing for you to take Paxlovid. Why? It, it was, in, even if it does work, we don't know yet. It might take years for us to establish that. The point is there's money in it, right? So you have that corrupt thing combining and fucking up all of the incentives when it comes to it. So when it comes to medicine, um, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point on medicine because I've already made it, but the love and celebration of what psychedelics can do ideally on paper would everything about it would change. And just going off basic life wisdom here, I would say that if we moved into a place where suddenly acid was kind of taken quite a lot and quite uh, normalized to the point where people would just, it, there was no stigma around it anymore. All of that old crap from the past had gone. No more, oh, you take acid, you jump out of a window. We laugh at that. We roll our eyes. It's normal to laugh at that. And it becomes ridiculed like it always should have been. The point is, is what would happen is acid wouldn't be acid anymore. MDMA wouldn't be MDMA anymore. Mushrooms wouldn't be mushrooms anymore. The same thing that happened to cannabis would happen, right? Because cannabis makes you, does a lot of the things that you referred to there, Brandon, like, you know, look at Rastafarian, right? Like these people are out of context. They are, they are, they are sovereign individuals for want of a better term. And it's impossible to think how this substance they're smoking, that's a huge part of their, uh, of their religion, um, can be co-opted by the state and turned into, you know, basically Aldous Huxley's summer, right? Like people get home, smoke a joint, watch Netflix and order pizza. It's like, is any Rastafarian really expecting that to become of this holy substance for them? Probably not, especially not while they're championing it and celebrating it and trying to get you to see the light of it and the truth of it because ultimately that's just how perverted things can become so the sad thing is um i want psychedelics to stay as illegal as possible and think it's a better a benefit a blessing in disguise that the state attacks it not because okay. i don't want people to ever take them it's just because i think they're better that way they're used more responsibly uh yeah go ahead yes i want to i, I want to riff off that basically really quickly. So, so Brandon, you said earlier, hedonism, spiritual pursuit, medical. Um, I, I, I still place actually hedonism above both of them. Um, because it's, for me, it's more honest. Um, and, and where I'm, where I'm going with this is like the spiritual one, which we'll touch on a little bit later, any, but re really quickly is I think, um, humans have been contemplating, um, life in the universe and God, for a lot longer than, you know, modern hippies have been um, taking, you know, psychedelics. And I think, you know, for, for example, uh, I, I said, I, I said something to John yesterday as we were, um, as we were talking and uh, I wrote it down after I said it, it was, if the truth was spoken by God and written in a book like the Bible, is it not the height of hubris to seek truth via a substance? Um, is that not a false God? Is that not what the Bible wants? Now, you know, that, that's just sort of 
me putting my Christian hat on. And funny enough, just, just so you know, um, I'm actually not a devout Christian or anything like that. I said this on the, on the podcast yesterday. It's, you know, I'm, I'm still quite skeptical and still questioning, but I think there is far more wisdom uh, in a book that's lasted 2000 years than someone who gets some, you know, wisdom out of, um, out of a, out of a trip. So, so I feel like, you know, the, the whole spirituality movement is very, um, very, very, very skeptical of the spirituality movement. Now there is a difference between seeking enlightenment and performing personal introspection. And, and I want to get into that a little bit later because that's a, that's something I've been uh, writing about recently. And I think there's a valid place for introspection. Um, but I think that is very different to, um, to, to spirituality. So anyway, um, hedonism, spirituality, and then the third one, the, the medical, I, I side with mechanic with a bit of, um, with a bit of nuance here and I'm going to make a couple points and then I'm going to read something from my you know, partially written article to kind of throw at you and just see what your thoughts are on this. So number one is um, I, I think the world, particularly the West is over-medicated in every way possible. Um, the legalization and the framing of any sub any such substance um, as medicine to solve problems that I don't think are meant to be solved uh, through medicine. So things like depression, um, d- depression is not a disease and it's not a mental illness in my mind. D- depression is just a fucking lack of uh, meaning and probably a lack of sunlight. Um, and quite frankly, um, a little bit too much privilege or cushion, like a, l- a little too much comfort in life. Um, you strip the comfort away. Depression goes away very, very, very quickly. I've always said that the, the cure to depression is you take everyone who's depressed, you put them on a plane, you drop them off in the middle of Africa, and the plane takes off. You'll see how quickly their fucking depression disappears when the motherfuckers got to find water and start getting chased by a lion through the Sahara. Depression's gone straight away. They'll never have it again. Um, so, so for me, I think that the trap here with the um, the medicalization of these uh, substances is that they are going to do the very thing that we shouldn't be doing with these so-called uh, mental illnesses or mental fucking labels that are floating around, whether it's depression or fear of death or fucking anxiety or whatever else, um, you know, shit like weed is being subs- prescribed for today that tomorrow psychedelics will be prescribed for, is that we're going to create more cushions for those supposed problems where the cushion is actually the problem in the first place. The fact is that they are too fucking comfortable already. That's why they're depressed. That like a, a man is depressed when he doesn't have purpose or meaning. It's literally the fucking problem. And he doesn't have purpose or meaning when he has nothing to fight for. And he has nothing to fight for when he's too comfortable. Um, and, you know, th- there's no actual danger or something around him to, you know, to, to challenge him. So, you know, just a couple other quick notes here is, um, you know, we're too cushion, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, okay. I've already mentioned all these. Um, so Dude, let me, I'm going to quickly comment on that because it only take me 10 seconds. I completely agree. I think we're mischaracterizing modern illnesses. You don't, diabetes type two barely exists. What exists is awful diets. That's what people should actually mm-hmm. be talking about rather than diabetes. So all these self-diagnosed mental illnesses that showed up in like people all have OCD and ADHD and autism and all this. It's most of the time it's bollocks and it's self-diagnosed indulgence and diseases of luxury and, and you know i completely agree okay okay so then let me let me just finally really quickly just read the um the passage from my um from my partially written article so it says 
trusting the science and the realms of biology gave us food pyramid, seed oils, meat, experimental medication, antidepressants, gender transformation therapies, and a myriad of other interventionist stupidities. Um, the people who created this, these uh, uh, therapies have no concern for trade-offs uh, or cost benefits because they are after a particular result or measurement. Uh, their livelihoods and grants depend upon it. Uh, so when the science says um, that I should do psychedelics, it's a great signal for me not to do them. Um, anytime a medical, pharmaceutical professional or scientist tells me to do something, I'm very wary. Uh, what you guys said, fun, funny enough, what mechanics said earlier is in here, it says bro science is far superior in matters of metaphysics, biology, the body and the mind. These are not empirical matters. These are the realm of what matters. And that is about as subjective as it gets. You can't do science here. Practically, the entire medical world is a farce designed to drug and dope you into altered states of consciousness so that you're unable to resist the next drug or substance to keep you numb, distracted, suggestive, and obedient. So that's kind of my, my thinking there. So of all of them, I actually think that the medicalization of these substances is probably the fucking worst thing to happen, followed by um, the, the pathway to fake enlightenment um, or unknown wisdom or fake spirituality or whatever. Um, with hedonism being probably better than both of those. And then maybe the best thing being um, deliberate introspection by a mature adult who is, um, you know, seeking, you know, the enhancement of an idea, for example, which anyway, we can get into later, but I'd love to hear your thoughts there, Brandon, because we've spoken too much now. Mm -hmm. I have a, a buildup of really strong points here. <laughs> Awesome. So, awesome. First quick one, diseases of modernity. We all agree here. And I think this is so straightforward in 50 years, 20 years, 30 years, we're going to look back so embarrassed on how we approach the modern life. Um, and I think the straightforwardness is that we grew up in a hunter gatherer time. So everything in our biology is forged at a previous time and modernity looks nothing like our ancient life. And I think that the key point that I'll add on top here is that I think humans through technology, through civilization, through these great acts, um, through intellectualism, liberalism, we, we now consider ourselves gods, right? We have ascended outside of the animal kingdom, and now we're this individual thing where we can just outthink, out-engineer the world around us. And we can engineer our food to have, you know, fortified blah, blah, blah bullshit versus eat what our ancestors ate. And I think that hubris um, is the problem. And so it, it goes back to fundamentals, community, sunshine, proper food, all those type of things. And all, yeah, all the diseases of modernity go away. Now, purpose is the only one that I think is extremely hard to satisfy in modern life because we have this uh, hyper-specialized global information economy, which is that you know, there's no purpose there, right? Purpose comes from uh, achieving goals with your community and people seeing you and going to battle or whatever uh, metaphorical battle it is. Um, and as a man that's protecting, raising a family, that's doing all those type of things. And it's really hard to do that in modernity. And so finding meaning, I don't know how we're going to do that. We have a major meaning crisis today. Uh, next point, Svetsky, you're not going to like this one. So you, you said truth is in the Bible right? Read the book, get the wisdom. Why would you need to take a sacrament? And I think the complete opposite is true. So I support the wisdom in the Bible. There's tremendous lessons there. Um, but by supporting what you read in the Bible versus experiencing God yourself, you're essentially trusting the old mystics 
and all the editorializing that went through their wisdom by the Romans and, and all the derivatives after that. Um, and essentially the old mystics took psychedelic drugs, meditated in caves, darkness, um, fasting, pain, giving themselves pain, etc., in order to meet God, in order to earn this wisdom. And with that wisdom, they created all these uh, books. All They wrote down what they learned. It was uh, forged through culture over time, blah, blah, blah. And the good stuff theoretically persisted. Uh, but then you have political aspirations like Constantine, who says, okay, fine. After you know, 400 years of Christianity being a hippie basement religion, which was about self-sovereignty and individuals meeting God, it, they made it into this state-sanctioned religion. They got rid of the, the actual psychedelic Eucharist and made it a placebo. They, they didn't put in the books that said the, all the things like drugs and women uh, would pass on the knowledge. Instead, it was uh, more or less fitting their political aspirations. And so I, I would question, how, how do we know what, what the books are saying? How do we know that's the intention of the mystics? And I, I think it, it's more important that seekers... And that's not a lot of people, but the, the, the actual seekers should experience God. Maybe the masses can read it, but I think I think we shouldn't throw away the Eucharist, the proper Eucharist, which was a psychedelic potion. Now, if we go back even farther, the Greeks, the foundation of all of our thought today, they all those people went to a psychedelic initiation called the Illusion Mysteries, 13 miles out of Athens. They, they prepped for a year. They went for a week-long ceremony. They had a potion. They died before they die. They go to the underworld. They have beatific visions. They come back and then they can live a proper life after experiencing uh, a death through this drug. You know, die before you die. Or if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. And all the Greeks that we can name, they all went here. Marcus Aurelius, Pythagoras, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they all speak very highly of this. And so I think we can't throw out that that part of our culture, even though it's mostly hidden. And so the wisdom came from that. All of our thoughts, theater, democracy, which that sensitive subject, Svetsky, but a lot of things that we built society on today came from that. Um, and so I think mechanic mechanic called it the felt presence of direct experience. And I think that's a really important uh, aspect here. And then finally, after the shotgun uh, points is done, uh, legal versus illegal. Um, I, I tend to agree with the philosophy there, mechanic, like the illegal version of things. It's more pure. It's more, uh, there's more self-responsibility required. Fewer people have access to it, etc. cetera. Uh, but where I disagree is that where does that go practically? Because most people are in the middle on, on most issues. They don't actually want a cypherpunk future full of private keys and running nodes. And so like all cool ideas, it starts out niche and then it gets too big and everyone complains about it. Oh, it's changed. And it has changed because it necessarily has to become more watered down for the masses to adopt a thing. And so do we try to self-sabotage the movement and try to keep it underground longer? Uh, do we embrace the, the mainstream version, but also maintain that like boutique basement version? Um, I don't really know how to assess that practically, but it doesn't seem possible to stop it. And so it feels more like we should steer it and try to keep the original spark alive, even if underground. Yeah, that's a that's a hard one because uh, to me, the practical way to prevent a thing like Bitcoin from becoming a bastardized and uh, you know neutered version of what it is is using the greatest weapon known to man, which is the government. 
to help us. And the way they can help us is by unwittingly preventing us from um, uh, using it as we wish. Uh, uh, you know, this is my point, right, is that if you want people to self-custody and run full nodes and do all these things that they're just not going to do, government overnight can force everyone to do it. Uh, buy KYC free Bitcoins, coin join your coins, don't use non don't use custodial wallets, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You can get everyone to do that overnight by just making Bitcoin illegal. And then there are no more coin bases. There are no more Barry Silberts and so on. I'm talking to an empty chair. I know this is an audio uh, podcast and so no one knows but Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> he just got shot. He's mushrooms in the high just get just fucking off his chair. Um, I heard every word. I, I, I'm I, following you. Oh, yeah, he's got uh, right. <laughs> but no, to, um, okay. to, to finish the point though, there's, I, I come between exactly between you guys when it comes to the, to the, you know, Svetsky's um, opinion is that this is unearned wisdom. And Brandon's opinion is that, um, that, which I'm more inclined to agree with is if, if there's a truth that can be attained, you shouldn't, I mean, in all full Bitcoin fashion, you should not trust, you should verify. And if someone's saying, no, this is the state of the blockchain, right? What do you know with your full node? This is the history of transactions. And you do have some coins because I, I said so. Like that's kind of the, you know, the authority that um, the corrupting religion can have. Uh, and in theory, a loving God wouldn't say, wouldn't deny the ability for every individual to um, to ascertain what's true and what isn't through their own personal experience and their own revelation because of how corruptible man is and the fact that, that we know that the Bible has been, uh, you know, changed and changed and changed. And like, I still struggle with this as someone that goes to church every Sunday. What fucking Bible do I read? Which one? Because I've changed churches recently and now it's a new Bible. And everyone's just telling me, don't worry about it. And I'm saying, doesn't this matter though? Doesn't this matter? Like I wanna, like I'm gonna treat this thing with the reverence I've been told to treat it with. And no one even seems to tell me what Bible is the correct Bible to read. How can it be the word of God if it keeps changing all the time? There's too much interpretation. So I don't wanna close hope that I can take a, a sacrament as you beautifully put it um, and have the revelation in a necessarily first person way. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm supposed to take the opposite side, but I don't really want to, like, I, I'm someone yeah, that let, let me, okay, about let me, good, right? <laughs> Sorry, go for let it. me, let me, let me just put something in here. So, so I think just to, to, to Brandon's point, uh, there's, there's this important nuance. You, you were just say, saying there that, that don't trust verify. Um, I don't think uh, taking the substance verifies anything. Um, you know, verification of any uh, principle comes from the application of the principle to your life. Um, so I think what, you know, things like the Bible and, and whether it was the Bible, whether it was the, the Vedic, whatever, like there are timeless principles that have emerged uh, over the centuries, over the millennia that, um, that have become um, told not through uh, direct commandments, but through stories. And effectively that the power of the Bible comes from the poignancy of the stories in teaching a lesson about how one should live. And, and that's the purpose of it. And so the verification actually comes from the application of it, the application of said principle uh, to your life. And this is where I think um, because you've taken a mushroom trip, does not actually verify anything. And more often than not, and this is my experience, there are exceptions to the rule. Like you two guys, uh, for me, 
you know, and Valis, I said this to him yesterday as well. You guys are exceptions to the rule of the very few people I know who have taken these substances um, that I think have come out the other end, either stronger, wiser, um, you know, more, uh, how can I say, emotionally and intellectually conservative and intelligent. Most people that I know have fucking gone off the rails. Like they are, you know, they, they literally depend on the shit. They have to go do a... Um, uh, a fucking retreat every six months um, because you know they're they've, they're in a new mental breakdown. They've got a new major challenge, or you know they they come up they have a fucking problem, so they have to microdose their way through it. Or you know they they're at a point apparently every fucking three months they have a big decision in life that they have to make, so they need to go away for a weekend and do a mushroom trip in order to make that decision. And to me, all I'm seeing there is like crutch after crutch after crutch after crutch. You know, these people actually haven't uh, enhanced themselves. And really what they fucking need is a couple of things, a slap in the face, um, you know, a, a, a fucking maybe a confession in church and sit down and read a couple of fucking stories uh, in the Bible and um, get the fuck off uh, effectively, like how they're using them, using them as drugs. So, so anyway, just that small nuance there about verification, I, I, I agree you know, don't trust verify, but verifying is not in the the not or it, verification doesn't occur in the taking or in the not of taking the substance. It's just purely in the application of uh, the principles that one you know learns. And and I think there's a lot more to learn um, from people who were not distracted by technology thousands of years ago. And had the time to sit down and contemplate, look at the stars, discuss, um, you know, the reason for existence. Uh, whereas today, like, you know, that's why modern philosophy is such a fucking scam. Like, you know, we today, uh, you know, crowning achievement for philosophy is Sam Harris and fucking Ryan Holiday um, versus, right. you know, sort of what came before it. So, so anyway, there was that. And then I just wanted to make a note. I think the ascetics, as far as I understand, they were the most based Christians in the early days, and they specifically did not use any substances. Their whole thing was um, was to basically renounce everything um, and be, be, be ascetic in order to experience this. So I don't think I, – I know there's like particularly in the immortality key, it kind of makes a suggestion that there is um, – in the foundations of Christianity were perhaps uh, a, a variation or a derivative of, you know, these rites of passage. And that may or may not be true. I don't know, like – it's um, it's it's an interesting thought. Um, I don't know if I bite yet. Um, and then the last thing here is about the um, the ancients. So just to clarify, it's some of the ancients used, uh, you know, a psychedelic sacrament after a year of preparation, and generally it was once in their entire lives. And I think that's a pretty important distinction um, to make. Is that um, you know, it's a there's something to do. There's there's something important about abstinence, um, and I don't know, like the the respect and space that such a experience is given. That um, I just don't think that as we normalize this, we lose that. And, and this is the problem with the um, the general of accept the general acceptance of it in society. And this this actually you know probably just agrees with Brandon's point in the beginning about, um, you know, you become, you find these things, you become a fucking evangelist, which I did as well. Like, mind you, I'm not speaking from non-experience. Like I tried psychedelics for the first time when I was 32, which was three years ago. And I thought I fucking discovered something really 
profound. Um, and I babbled on about it for about two years, but what I quickly found was, was everyone that I knew that also did it, like I said, bar a few exceptions to me was morally bankrupt and maybe not bankrupt. That's probably too strong, but morally confused. Um, or there was, there was an emptiness or there was a, there was a shallowness. Um, and it's just there was this inconsistency and that that's what made me start to question this. And I'm doing this questioning funny enough. And I had a incredible experience with my wife while in the mountains in Italy, just fucking three weeks ago. So, so just not to sound like a fucking hypocrite, um, this probably ties back into what mechanic said before. I, I think there's something special about this, but man, the fucking normalization, I think is what gets me. Um, and I think that's just fucking dangerous. A couple of really quick points there. A, a really important part about Eleusis, a year of preparation. You had to be admitted. It was not everyone. Mm-hmm. And it was once, mm-hmm. right? The people who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, stole the, the recipe to the potion, they would go try to mm-hmm. have their own little backyard psychedelic experiences. They were killed, right? Just like Prometheus okay. stealing fire from the God. Same right. thing with, with uh-huh. like the high class Greeks who did the same thing. Um, that's one point. Another thing with regards to um, unearned wisdom, with regards to is the drug insight or uh, do you have to verify it later in life? Um, I think we agree on that. The the experience you have with the sacrament is a way to generate insight, to feel God, to be God, which is very different from reading about it. You cannot read about God in the same way that you can experience it. And so if it's just practical Mm -hmm. life wisdom, then yes, the metaphors, the allegories in the Bible are just like, hey, yo, here's all the best ways to live. Integrate these lessons in your life. You'll probably have a, a better life. Agreed. But actually touching God is is entirely unrelated to the Bible. Um, And I actually think today Jesus would shit himself and throw Christianity out in the garbage if he saw what it was today. It has nothing to do with his life, his teachings, and what the context upon which his life was lived. Um, And so I guess to bring it to meet you in the middle here, Alex, it's about integration. Yeah, you go meet God, but then what does that mean? What does that mean on Monday when I have to chop wood and carry water and I have a screaming child upstairs, right? And so, yeah, taste it, but integrate it, build it in yourself, then verify it, re-verify it, and don't deceive yourself. Um, to the point of the hippies you see, they're they're in self-deception land. Um, they're uninitiated, they're, they're, they're young, and there's no process. It's traditionally an initiation. It was with elders and structure and, and guardrails to generate the most positive experience. But today we're, you know, we're lost in the abyss of, of uh, liberalism gone too far. And we're, we're just tapping the drug button versus doing the hard work. And so, yeah. yeah. If, I, if um, I can summarize one position I want to have that I think is really important uh, and hopefully we can all agree on it is that, we have this notion of Nietzsche saying we've killed God and well, you know, there'll never be enough, uh, there'll never be enough cleaning materials to wipe up all the blood that comes as a result of the waning and waxing political ideologies and pendulums that are now going to come as everyone substitutes a divine uh, entity for left-wing ideology or right-wing ideology. Like I'm sure we all agree on that, right? And that that is not a claim as to the existence or the non-existence of God. It's just an acknowledgement of people and how they do things when they don't have a God. 
So I, I'm pretty sure we all agree on that, right? So um, that that means I can get that B out of my bonnet, right? I'm just I wanted to do that just so I can forget about that point because that's my position on psychedelics. Essentially, it's very legal, and that's probably a net positive for all of the good things about them. Uh, and mm-hmm. the minute I'm legal and normalized, is I'm just trying to see if we can reconcile it and all agree here because normalization and day-to-day run-of-the-mill use of something called LSD that isn't really LSD. It's, you know, instead of MDMA, it's actually just Adderall. You know, these kinds of legalized versions of the things which are very similar and do similar things, but they just kind of neuter the whole thing. It kind of looks to me like when you make a product and the product is amazing, but 99% of the time it's, sorry, 99% of the time it's great, but 1% of people will shoot themselves in the foot with it. So you've got to change the whole product just to to allow for these small group of people to not hurt themselves with it, which neuters and bastardizes the whole product. And then we're left with something that's just a shell of what it once could be. Like um, there are plenty of good examples of that, uh, that all escape me right now, but it's a cultural litigation, you know, uh, that means that everyone has to, like take getting on an airplane, right? Like you've got a very small group of people that, might make a hash or something. So now we've all got to watch the same stupid safety demonstration every single time we get on a plane. Like, I mean, you could get on a plane of five minutes. Uh, you could drive to the airport and get on a plane. But because of a tiny group of people, it's impossible and all this nonsense has to be done instead. And that would become the psychedelic experience if it was legal. And no one would bother going the illegal route anymore because there was a legal route. Like, no one is buying proper weed from proper weed dealers anymore. They're just going to their dispensary in Vancouver and buying the most ridiculously overpowered stuff because that's all that's available and it's not economically viable to grow it yourself anymore. So, yeah, a, a couple other things I wanted to respond to as well that you said there, Brandon. Um, so Christianity, I completely agree. If Jesus came back and saw what it had become, it would it would just be an absolute, it's beyond any sort of, perversion possible and again that reinforces and provides another metaphor for my overall point i keep making which is christianity became embraced by the state it was sovereign individuals at the beginning it was rebellious it was if you do this thing we will nail you to a cross it became culturally dominant and completely corrupt and bastardized and that's why it turned into the shit show that it is but i mean recently because it's become oppressed again and like it's starting to become a good thing if you go to a church there's no bullshit that the people there are there because they want to be there and they believe it like that wasn't the case 70 years ago people were in church because they were forced to go and they were shamed if they didn't so again it's it's always good if there's something good if the state makes it illegal it it distills and uh uh um will exaggerate the good qualities of the thing and make it the best version of itself. Whereas state um, state sanction, in the positive sense of the word, state embrace, always turns things into just an awful version of what it could be. It turns the finest cuisine into McDonald's every time because McDonald's is just bad for you in every single subtle, slow-acting way. Whereas like a beautiful steak made by the world's best chef is going to be something that one guy accidentally chokes on and no one does the Heimlich maneuver. So now no one can eat steak. That's sort of my analogy for the whole thing. And one last point I wanted to make, and then I swear I'll shut up for quite a while, is uh, you, you mentioned Sam Harris. And the minute someone mentions Sam Harris, I have to go off on a massive rant because I don't think there's any better example of uh, relativism gone wrong 
which is if if your if your self wisdom and your entirely so this is where I'm going to go back on the point I made earlier, where I'm saying it should be possible to trust to verify without trusting. You should be able to figure it all out yourself. But I'm on two sides of this one because on the other side of it, you can't learn everything there is to know in your short life. And listening to the wisdom of those that came before you is an incredibly intelligent thing for you to do, and it's a valid heuristic and approach like you listen to your grandparents they know things you just don't know right and the bible is full of that the bible is going to teach you things that you could learn yourself the hard way you're not going to be able to learn all of it and some of it might get you killed before you actually learn it you know so everyone needs an older brother everyone needs a, a good father and the damage of not having these things around demonstrates the fact that you can't just get born into the world as this alleged blank slate that Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris say we are. We have no ideology. We don't believe in God. It's some silly culture that puts it on us. This is so naive and uh, so one-dimensional as an analysis. That's not true at all. Even like on a fundamental psychological level, we anthropomorphize the universe. It's a human universal. We come up with different words for stuff, but the idea that we're on a blank slate and what it gives way to, what it begets, this Sam Harris type of mentality is worship of the mind in lieu of any sort of divine entity for us to worship which we're just biologically engineered to do and mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. what comes as a result of that is whatever i think is whatever leads me to my conclusion i'm never going to ever have some anchor to reference that to to see whether i've gone off the rails or not which is why you saw him going on about uh, donald trump is so much worse than osama bin laden and you're saying how can you possibly come to that conclusion because you don't have any moral basis of anything you do. It's all just thought, thought, thought. It's all masturbation. It's all mental masturbation. And you've abandoned any of the moral underpinnings of it, which we say in the Nietzsche sense is dangerous for a society to do at large. But it's actually even dangerous for individuals sometimes because there's a part of you that's supposed to go, no, no, we don't do that. Like there's just supposed to be an in, like you're supposed to get these gut feelings, these reactions. This it can be a sense of embarrassment or a sense of fear or anything like that. There isn't a mental process where you go, oh no, that's bad. And I always use that analogy like if you jump out of the way of a car that's about to hit you, Sam Harris would get hit by it because he was thinking whether it was a good or bad thing to do to jump out of that car. Whereas someone that's just an actual not uh, someone that hasn't become stupid as a result of abandoning all of the self-evident you know religion that surrounds us that has spent all their time considering whether it was a good idea to do something or not and abandoned the fundamentals of what it just means to be a human so oh, end of end of rant there but i can't let a sam harris comment go without absolutely trashing the guy <laughs> agreed i hate that guy so much <laughs> mechanic oh sorry yeah, go for it. um i want to respond to what Oh, Brandon, we lost you. Yeah, we Have lost we lost him? him? Yeah, we lost him. Me and you were still... My him. concern here... Sorry, Oop, we lost you for a second, buddy. Go again. Okay. Go so once a state sanctions it, it becomes bad, right? We agree on that. But where mm -hmm. we disagree is that I don't see an alternative because I think that life is cyclical like that. I think that that's our nature to... Uh, the, the, the lesser aspects of humans uh, drive us there. And so all good things get perverted and then the pendulum swings the other way. Like liberalism in the 14, 1500s was a good thing, right? Um, but it went too far today. And now we're like floating in relative relativism land. 
And psychedelics are best, let's say good, or you could say they're in their best when illegal and small. Once they're sanctioned, they're perverted. Agreed. Uh, Money is the same, right? Uh, You start off with a new monetary system. It makes sense. And then things decay and, and the leaders take advantage of the situation. And I think the key that makes Bitcoin valuable that is so entirely lost on the crypto space is that the entire point is that it can't be perverted. Bitcoin can't mm-hmm, be perverted. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest thing to pervert, right? Can't might be too strong, but very hard to pervert. And that's where the value comes from. I wish and so I guess. I missed it. Yeah. Sorry, please finish. But uh, Oh, no, yeah. I'll, well, I'll give you one one second. Here. The point to me is that this culture or this cycle is embedded in civilization and we can't avoid it. And so the point is not to like whine about the state. The point is to see where we can push and steer culture in a better way with respecting the fact that this is what humans do. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to specifically Bitcoin, uh, I'm getting less and less optimistic uh, every day because Bitcoin doesn't fix humans that refuse to use it in a sovereign manner. It just can't. Um, it's, and this is why I invoke some crude and crass, um, you know, heavy handed operation by the state to force everyone to do it. Because I just, I feel like at the big, in the early days, back in the late seventies, when the first internet protocols were coming around, there would have been a, a beautiful, um, community of strong idealists, you know, the Adam Backs back in the day, you know, the Richard Stallmans, all of the people that, you know, created the ideological foundation for what would become the, the FOSS movement, these wonderful technologies like uh, Tor and Bitcoin itself and PGP and, you know, th- these fantastic pillars on which the internet's freedom are built on. First off, they all reinforce each other by their own by being illegal. Like Bitcoin bootstrapped itself thanks to illegal drugs and WikiLeaks being financially uh, block- blockaded. We have so much to thank for that. If drugs had been legal, we never would have been demonstrated that use case of Silk Road, which was massive for so many people. Bitcoin was the way around financial censorship. And if there is no financial censorship, people just don't understand. Even someone like me, who claims to be you know, an OG Bitcoiner and a big proponent and a cypherpunk, I might not have got it if I hadn't had Silk Road staring me at the face and an obsession with illegal psychedelic drugs and uh, you know, and uh, a love and you know, complete hero worship of Julian Assange and a way to send him money, you know, pay for that shirt using Bitcoin. You know, so that that point to me is it's it's poetically beautiful, the fact that the state like when Twitter bans tweets, you know there's probably true information in there. So when the state comes along and bans something, you're like, ah, interesting. What's going on here? There's some sort of forbidden knowledge here. And to me, I appreciate it. This is why I don't want Elon Musk to take over Twitter and make it uh, you know, some sort of Dogecoin platform because I just think it's great. Like You can find out everything you need to know on Twitter. And if you really want to know where the signal is, just look for anything that they fact check or banned. <laughs> It's like, the, it's like the best hack there is. It's such a reliable heuristic. Like if there's mm-hmm. something wrong with some sort of, you know, government approved medicine and someone ever points it out, it will show up immediately. You can't, even to the minute point where you can't like it, you can't comment on it, but you can quote tweet it. And that has, that is the most Streisand effect thing I've ever seen. It just makes the thing, it's like Twitter. What if they sat around and said, what could we do to make information by Dr. Robert Malone and, uh, you know, the, the that radiologist, cardiologist that Joe Rogan had on that got banned from everything. Like, 
what could we do to make these people's messages spread far and wide in seconds? Like they do exactly what they did. And this is why I think it's don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Like I think or I'm, I'm trailing off here, but um, mm-hmm. I think. Can I yeah, respond okay. to that one? Yeah, for sure. Go, go, go. Okay. So I agree. Bitcoin does not fix human nature, right? We can, it doesn't on net make people self-sovereign. Um, but I don't think that it needs to. I don't think we can move the middle 70% of people. I don't think the middle 70% of people drive culture. I think that they're, this sounds bad, but they're more or less irrelevant in the direction of our species. They're followers and there's nothing Ooh. wrong with that lifestyle. But I think that that's ultimately true. And so, <laughs> and what I, what I think that matters with Bitcoin is that the ideologically motivated people have the opportunity to be self-sovereign. And as long as some percentage, whatever that X percentage of people or X percentage of supply is so essentially dissuades the state from making the attack. It prevents the state from full co-opting because the cost of tyranny is too high. And I think it's always, always, always an arms race with this stuff. Satoshi said it as well. This is an arms race with the state. This buys us time. This buys us freedom. This buys us liberty. As we transition to a digital world, um, we need this thing. And I think that as the state encroaches more and more, slowly people do wake up. Kanye West may wake up due to his recent encounters with the banking system or the censorship, right? And I think that that's all we need is preserve the spark of freedom to the next fight. Time's infinity. I I agree massively. Um, I would say, though, um, also, Bitcoin doesn't fix human nature, as you said. What it does do is it takes humans exactly as they are and says, how can we leverage this to make a system uh, that is reliable and unchangeable? So it doesn't appeal to altruism at all, which is why you know I cringe when people are like, run a node, support the network. I'm like, That's not why you run a node. You run a node for your own benefit. That's the whole point of this thing. You mine Bitcoin. You don't buy an S9 to support the network. You buy an S9 because you want some KYC-free sats and to maybe heat your basement at the same time. So I'm saying... Like we can't, it does help the network if you run a node and it does help the network if you mine, particularly if you don't mind using the biggest pool there is, but that shouldn't, if Bitcoin needs that, then Bitcoin is going to fail because it can't need humans to act altruistically. It it just can't. So by the same token, this is why I have the perspective I have when I'm saying push for encroachment by the state which is, um, this is supposed to be psychedelics, isn't it? When all we do is talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> the point is, like, you have, um, you can put, people's human nature doesn't change, but, you know, you put one guy in one situation and he's, you know, r- breaking the world record for hula hoop or something, and you put him in another situation and he's a murderer and a rapist. Like, human, it's got nothing to do with anything beyond his circumstances and maybe some very strongly entrenched morals, but... If you put most humans in a situation that you could put them in by making Bitcoin crudely illegal, then the majority of them start using it in a way where sovereign usage of it becomes the default rather than just an option for people. Because I worry that the option is not sufficient. Um, I worry that uh, in the future, you have your KYC free coins, you have a way of mining without them knowing about it, but mining becomes as precarious as growing cannabis uh, in a cupboard in your house becomes like it produces a lot of heat. The power company know you're probably doing something. You might be able to get away with it, but it's risky. You know, that is preferable to me because 
in that situation, all the big mining pool, you don't have Mara pool trying to push OFAC compliant blocks anymore because it's illegal and you don't have people leaving all their coins on Coinbase because Coinbase can't exist anymore. It's illegal. And you don't have me telling everyone to use BISC and to buy a cold card or any of these things um, because they have to do those things. So um, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's putting humans. That's a good point. You, yeah. you put humans in a place where they have no choice but to act in a sovereign manner or get thrown in jail. Like you have to put people in that situation. If you don't, then you're sort of forgetting one of these principles of Bitcoin, which is what is human nature? Let's leverage that. Not what should humans be doing, which is running full nodes and taking self-custody and mining to support the network. That's a should. People don't do shoulds, they do have tos because that's just the way it goes, in my opinion. That's that's just a, a more, and in all Ayn Rand fashion, it's like take what humans are, don't fight against their natural nature and make a system that can leverage that. But then the counterpoint to this, and I, I, I think this is a tension, I think this is a paradox, I think this is a thread the needle moment for Bitcoin because I don't think that approach is sufficient to take the money printer out of the hands of the state. Uh, that What that is, is a niche platform that's only used when people actually need it. And it would be more cypherpunk on average. And maybe that's good enough. We just have this private cash that, you know, those who need it can use it. But we're still going to be swimming in fiat soup if, if that's the future we end in. And only the mm-hmm. Vanguard will take the risk. So the other point here is that we need to make Bitcoin popular enough that the, the state actors can't attack it because it would be politically untenable. Now, the risk of that is it becomes state sanctioned and sanitized and they get their pound of flesh here and we risk neutering Bitcoin, right? So on one end, we have a mass adopted neutered Bitcoin. On the other end, we have a niche product that only helps 1% of the world. I think both outcomes suck, right? And so I work for a KYC exchange, but I don't want that to you know be my bias here. Um, but I'm actually on team make this thing popular so that it can't be attacked simultaneously we need to use technology to prevent it from being co-opted and i think that that's the key is like make tools that can't be stopped and make them popular Um, because if it's not popular the vast majority of people that could benefit won't because they're not going to go along with something that's scary or weird or or whatever and so i i I don't know i I don't think there's a a solvable answer here No, for sure. And but it's I'm just more maybe I'm just more prone to anxiety here. Um I, I most Bitcoiners are you know, Bitcoiners that I respect as well. I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, but you share the perspective that most Bitcoiners I know have. Like my close friend Toma, who's gonna be doing this same series with you, Svetsky, in a, in a week or something. Um they're like, look, don't worry about the KYC shit. It's not it's not gonna matter in the long run. Eventually the state withers away and we use Bitcoin and we're all free and happy. But I don't, I don't think that's a straw man as well. I think that's genuinely most people's position on it. Like, my fear is that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, like, there's these things like privacy in Bitcoin, which is woefully bad. You have you have a samurai, which is openly just a joke. Then you have wasabi, who, um, you know, are basically the only usable way of doing a coin join. And they have... Uh, what's uh, many are now ideologically considering corrupt because they now have a blacklist that they adhere to and censor certain UTXOs. I think on a practical level, I actually um, would have made all the same choices they made and 
It's uh, I don't think the backlash was justified. But the point is, it's only them that's around. And other than that, you have uh, Join Market, which is unbelievably complicated to use. Like I'm, I'm a decent Bitcoiner and I have a reasonable amount of technical knowledge and it's taken me forever to get something remotely usable when it comes to coin join, uh, sorry, to join market. So that's the state of Bitcoin privacy and privacy is essential. If we're going to, you know, it's in, that's part of the cypherpunk movement. Privacy is the ability to selectively reveal oneself to the world. It's beautiful. And it's taken a back seat because it's just not a priority because it doesn't have to be a priority. The point is, they said, you can buy Bitcoin, you just need to send us your passport and a utility bill and proof of address. Mechanic, and- mechanic. I'm going to yeah. I'm gonna step in because we're going to make this a Bitcoin podcast um, yeah. instead of a psychedelics <laughs> podcast. Sorry. I love you. You're right. Um, I mean, my my little, just to tie that loop before we before I rail us back onto um, psychedelics is that, you know, you, you, you're you very much right. And it is a, it is a, as Brandon said, it's a thread the needle. I think it's a silver, it's a lead bullet problem more than a silver bullet problem is that um, what I mean is that both approaches are necessary, but you know, at, in some sense, both approaches are kind of exclusive in a way. So it kind of makes it tricky. I don't know the answer to it. Um, I don't think Bitcoin changes uh, human nature in the short term, but I actually do think it changes in the long term purely because Bitcoin uh, lowers individual time preference. And I think generationally that may actually change human nature. Um, I think that there is a difference between, for example, people who that there's a book called Alpine philosophy, um, which is written by an Austrian economist. Um, it's written in German, but like I got a synopsis of it. And basically it's this idea that people who lived in, you know, basically the mountains in the Alpine region of Europe um, had to have a lower time preference because of the variation in um, in climate and also the variation in um, altitude that they had to live with. Um, and it made them more cooperative, made them behave in a different way uh, versus in the tropics. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of evidence uh, to that, you know, s- suggesting why there's a particular part of um, Europe which is far more economically prosperous um, because of those reasons. So anyway, I think time preference has an impact on nature uh, over the long term. And I think that's where Bitcoin... Uh, helps, but once again, as Brandon said, and people, you know, he he was very kind saying seventy percent don't matter. I think you know, eighty at minimum, um, more likely ninety five percent don't matter um, in terms of setting the trend and establishing you know what matters. And I guess this is where um, you know what you're doing at Start Nine, etc., is important. But yeah, what what is the catalyst to 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 kind of strengthen that? I don't know. But anyway, I'll, sh- I'll, I'll leave that there for now. Um, and I want to just quickly go back to um, psychedelics so that we can go through a couple final questions before we wrap this up. Is um, One of them is, I wrote a note here saying, um, actually, you know, there's no point in going through this. I was going to ask, is, is experiencing God a good thing for the masses? Um, because I'm not sure people can handle it. Um, I think most people are probably better off uh, learning about God, you know, through through text, through stories, through a teacher, until they're ready to experience God, and perhaps um, that experience is not really experiencing God, but it's um, it's you know, I don't know. It's it's, it's how do, how do I phrase this? It's uh, I feel like uh, Klaus Schwab would agree with you, and all of the what. People. 
like the the masses just can't handle it and they need to be led around like sheep this oh, is this is it. i can't yeah like this yeah. is me and you have spoken about this before svetsky is uh, i can't reconcile this i hate being treated by these bill gates and you know these elitist assholes that want to tell me what i'm going to eat and what i'm going to experience and all that stuff i hate it but at the same time i know that they view us pretty much the way you view humanity which is the majority of you are sludge and i can't trust you with anything you need to be treated like cattle like i have a hard well, time no 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 i i no, no, no. there's a difference between cattle so so I, I wrote this in the remnant thing is that the difference between a parasite like a Schwab or uh, Bill Gates is that they want to run the lives of others versus the difference between a remnant is that he wants to run his own life and actually wants nothing to do with the masses um, and doesn't bother trying to save them or direct them or guide them or control them or anything. He's just like, leave me the fuck alone. Um, go do whatever the fuck you want to do. Um, and I'm not going to tell you to take psychedelics because frankly, I think you're a moron. Um, but I'm not going to tell you not to do it either. Um, but you know, if I think it's a good thing, I will do it, but I won't get up on a pedestal and try and save you all and, you know, be Timothy Leary or whatever, and think that solving all the world's problems is by doping everybody up on LSD. I don't, I don't think that's, um, and, and we, we established that earlier on in the thing. So my, my position is that, um, yeah, like the, an idiot who thinks they, experience God by taking a substance um, and then confuses, uh, you know, that experience as, you know, the, the peak experience. And then they spend the rest of their lives doing that is a, is a net drain, particularly in the, in the fiat soup society to use Brandon's words that we're living in is because then I have to subsidize his fucking stupid behavior by working harder and being more responsible and being sober. So I can't enjoy the shit. Um, because I need to pay more taxes to help maintain some sort of structural integrity in the civilization, which is, um, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul um, because Paul has a fucking uh, substance abuse problem, whereas um, I'm responsible enough not to. So, so that that's where my where my where my sort of issue is. Does oh, that man. clarify it? Yeah, look, I, I've I've done too much talking here, but I've got a million things I want to say. Brandon, please, you go next. <laughs> No, no. If, you, if you're biting on, chomping on the bit, I'll just give it a 10 second thing, which is that both Svetsky's view and Klaus Schwab's view start at the same place, which is, let's say the middle 70% is, is irrelevant to the direction of culture. Mm -hmm. Then Svetsky says, well, to me, I know that fact. I can disregard their opinions and I can forge my own path. I think that's a, mm -hmm. a rational, positive perspective, which I share. Klaus Schwab says, because they're all sheep, it is my responsibility and my right because I'm superior to drive society mm -hmm. and, and take advantage of these folks. And that's actually morally just. Um, and I think that's the fatal conceit there is. Mm -hmm. um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. And uh, I haven't been able to reconcile that and that actually does. So I appreciate that. Um, what uh, there's a whole bunch of things I wanted to touch on quickly. I've generally not if if you're looking for someone that was more polar opposite to Brandon's perspective, uh, I've done a bad job at that. But there's a couple no, of not at all. This this is the kind of conversation I expected because I don't I don't think there is a real polar opposite. I think um, anyway. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Some of my perspectives are like I do for for a large. There is a large part of me that thinks psychedelics are deceptive and evil uh, in some way, which. Um, 
I just I haven't quite figured out where I stand on it, but I want to talk about some of my deeper suspicions when it comes to these substances, which is, um, you know, uh, I've been sort of uh, toying around it a little bit. So there are two things really. The first is um, the the notion of uh, strongly defined boundaries between the genders, which we all know has been chipped away and destroyed and. And we also know that no man is the male archetype and no female is the female archetype. But there generally is a line you can't cross no matter how far away you stray from the archetype. And what I think psychedelics do to men is they push us in the wrong direction. And uh, I say that that's a rather soft way to put it, but it's something I feel is very fundamentally uh, important um, because I know that I, I'm the man in my family. I have, I'm the dad, I have a wife and kids. And I know that no matter how many times I indulge in psychedelics or how many times I try to rationalize it to myself, I know I'm not what my kids need in any capacity. And I mean, even if there's a, a, a net positive or a, a thing that comes afterwards that is better, I regret every single time I've done anything like dropped acid or anything like that since I became a parent, because my job as a man is to create an unquestionable structure for my kids. And if your kids do something wrong and it's up to, it's like that Jordan Peterson rule, don't let your kids do things that annoy you because it's bad for them. If you do, it's not that you're being selfish and, you know, you just want everything to be convenient and for your own life. It's because your kids have got to learn where the lines are. And if you create strong walls and boundaries for them, it creates a, a wonderful place for them to grow up in. If you don't do that, if you destroy all your own sense of boundaries and walls and notions of, you know, of things that just these metaphysical, uh, uh, yeah, boundaries, for, for lack of a better word, if you destroy all of them all and they come into question in your own frame, even if they were wrong in the first place, and even if the psychedelic drug made you go, oh, something I thought wasn't okay is okay. Like, you know, maybe, maybe you're like super racially prejudiced or something and your daughter is going out with a black guy or an Indian guy or something like that. And you take psychedelics and you go, you know what, this guy's a good guy. Why do I have a problem with him? Why, do, why am I against their relationship? Like, even in a case like that, I still think it's a net negative when you go, you provide the lines and it's up to your kids to very, 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 very much be aware of when they're stepping outside of them. They will step outside of them and that's a part of growing up, but don't bring them into question for your kids' sake is what I'm saying. And this is how I feel when I take psychedelics is that I feel like life becomes wonderful and so much fun for me. And I'm just not useful to my family in the same way anymore because I don't provide that thing because I've turned myself in. My kids effectively have two mums at that point. And it's like lovely because I get to be a mum for my kids and the most loving and indulgent. And I get to appreciate every tiny little thing they do that I wouldn't even notice normally. But there's something missing in the whole family dynamic now. And that to me is really concerning. And it might, this is very personal, but as we said, this is all bro science, right? No one's going to be able to quantify this or do any proper studies because it's too difficult and too inherently corrupt. But yeah, that's one of my perspectives where I think these things are bad news, particularly for men. And the other one uh, that I would talk about is, uh, hopefully I can do this much more quickly, is ego in general. And I look at 
people talk exclusively about ego as a bad thing. And if you talk, call people egotistical, it's always meant as an, as an insult. And I will defend ego to the death because ego will keep you alive. Ego is what creates a sense of what you are and what you aren't. And that is so important to know because it's that thing that will get you to jump out of the way of the, the oncoming vehicle. And I look at it like the, the Second Amendment. I really do. I think you can hurt yourself really badly with a gun if you don't know what you're doing and if you're irresponsible. But you're better off having one than not having one. And I won't have anyone tell me I'm not entitled to have one and I don't have a right to have one. So my ego, people have come at me before with nonsense, religious sorts of um you know, cultish kind of things telling me I need to look at, you know, there's this woman on YouTube and she's from the future and she she says that in three days this is going to happen and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, that's bullshit. And they're like, oh, that's just your ego talking. And I'm like, yes, yes, it's my ego talking. Thank you, ego, for saving me from an absolute bunch of nonsense that is going to send me down the wrong path that is cultish, that it all lies. And this is the problem and why I think... Um, to sum up here, uh, this is why I think psychedelics can open you up to God and they can just as easily open you up to Satan, but you also lose all of your ability um, or a lot of your ability to separate what's imaginary from what's real. And that's that's a breeding ground for Satan, unfortunately. Satan can just come in and say, you, you're not able to discern what's true and what isn't anymore. So you can have all the, and Satan loves the, the notions of things that sound true that makes sense mm-hmm. that actually aren't and that will lead you to a life of misery and ruin. And that's, you're just, you're a sitting duck when you're tripping balls. You're an absolute sitting duck for that kind of corruption. And those structures and those walls and those egotistical notions and the masculinity in general will just create, you know, the idea that you can just say no Satan and there's this powerful entity that's running all these institutions in the world and everything's so satanic and, you know, every little detail of the world we live in reflects that, right? Like if you want to have your your genitals chopped off, the Canadian government will pay for you to do it. They'll put you in a hotel for night after night, all paid for. If you want to do something different, like in vitro fertilization, no, that's going to cost you thousands of dollars. Anything that's destructive to life or against the notion of having a family or procreation is discouraged. It's bad for the environment. It's all, but what, that's just such a, that's such a satanic thing. And, and the fact that we're wide open to that now tells you, oh, my God, Satan's so powerful and all that. But Satan, any Christian will tell you this. You can t- if, if you feel that temptation, if you feel like you're getting led down a bad path, like towards infidelity or, you know, or to just or to uh, alcoholism or some other vice, you can just, if you sense it and you sense that it's bad, you can just say, no, Satan, and it stops immediately. It just goes away. It's that simple. And I learned that trick. From the Christians, they told me how, that's how you do it. Oh, Satan respects no. It's really easy. You don't need to fight against it. It's not a really hard enemy to defeat. You just say no, and it goes away. But you need to have that ego and that structure and those boundaries to be able to do that. So mm-hmm. when you take that off, when you switch to default mode network or whatever it is uh, in neuropsychologically that's going on when you're on psychedelics, your ability to do that goes. So that makes me go, this is you're playing with such fire when you do it and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. things that I had to not take psychedelics for a long time to go. Those things were there for a reason, weren't they? Cause they don't just come back when you stop tripping. They don't just come back. The holes that you punched in your own perspective, stay there. The doors of perception stay open. And it's, 
yeah, I'm gonna stop. I'm just gonna stop going on there. But that's that's sort of me taking finally a more. Dude, dude, no, no, no. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for bringing that up because that that was a. I wrote earlier here something, um, and Brandon, I'm gonna throw it over to you in a second. Alex, we can't hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I'll respond. Svetsky, just ping us when you're when you're back on. Um, so two points are essentially are psychedelics deceptive and evil, and then thoughts on ego. So I'll start with deceptive and ego evil. Um, first, I've mentioned self-deception probably five times already. Wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, you can't trust your mind, and there's yeah, it causes a lot of issues for sure. I think the key though is that in order to reduce the self-deception is to have structures around this, um, elders process, you could say a shaman, you could say initiation, write a passage, whatever. Um, and having the ability to ask questions and learn and, and make sure you process the, the lessons, uh, as good as possible. That's the, the counterbalance there. Um, with regards to men being pushed into their feminine, I agree with that wholeheartedly agree. Psychedelics are more feminine. Um, it, I, I think that's not a bad thing though. I view that as an expansive thing. I think that, um, in order for me to be in my masculine at its best, I actually need to have a good understanding of the feminine and where I fit. And I think tasting that, uh, being gobsmacked by the psychedelic experience is useful. Um, having more intuition, more compassion, more creativity, all feminine things. I think that's good for the man. Um, now the, the key with family, which I think is very interesting. Um, I'm two months into having a child. So that's a, a, a mission that I haven't really, uh, thank you. I haven't really gotten to taste. What is it like as a father going to the wishing well, um, but my perspective as of today is that it's good for a masculine frame to step out from time to time, as long as you rebuild and you have a healthy understanding of what you learned and you don't uh, become mom number two, because that's not good for anyone. No, um, <laughs> with regards to ego. Oh, sorry. Go ahead on that one. Did you have a son or a daughter? Uh, son. Yeah, it's I mean, you're, you'll notice things about your kid that you've never noticed before. Um, and it's so wonderful. And this is why I fear it so much because when I'm on acid, uh, not that I would publicly admit to ever taking acid and parenting at the same time, but you know, um, you, you see things about your children that you wouldn't have noticed before. And you think that I'm, I'm grateful that I saw that and that my mind was open enough to see it because I would have been distracted by something else if not. But this is ultimately another concern I have because anything that's too good to be true is. And in this case, it comes from the fact that every 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 drug you take has a has a a way of uh, weakening temporarily or overcoming some mechanism in the brain, right? Um, so alcohol will turn off all of these ability to inhibit. Uh, you know, uh, it turns off it turns off a lot of things. Alcohol does. Uh, cannabis will turn off certain things as well. Not really pain receptors, but opiates definitely do that. Opiate. Uh, opioids will um, disable your ability to um, well this is my point every time you do one of these things there's a there's a payoff afterwards in where you become less able to do the thing without the substance so if you experience pain after withdrawal from an opiate it's going to be much harder for you to mind over matter it and i don't think there isn't i don't you must know a person right that uh that took 
that, you know, a cannabis smoker that's just like every day, all day, they wake up, they smoke weed. Have you ever seen those people when they're not high and they like every little thing is annoying them? Like, you know, try and watch them drive a car and like freak out, road rage at everyone. And I'm like, they've, they've totally butchered their own ability to calm themselves down and have any chill. And that is ultimately, this is my biggest fear with psychedelics above everything else is that um, what psychedelics do, if it's the most worthwhile and noble thing that a drug can do, what are they weakening your ability to do without it? Because you can still go to church and have a spiritual experience and have every hair on your body standing on end and, and be crying and be saved. You can have that without psychedelics. So my fear is that if you use psychedelics, you become less able to do it without. Uh, just like a you know an alcoholic is finds it harder to relax and talk and socialize without being drunk first, which is like defines entire cultures. You know, I'm, I'm half Scottish. Like you can, people, people will just bottle stuff up for decades until they get drunk at some party, and then it all comes out. I'm like that's not healthy. But uh, I worry that. Um, Psychedelics, by having the highest purpose among all intoxicating substances, are uh, then uh, the quid pro quo for that is that you then are compromised in your ability to have spiritual revelation occur without the assistance of them, and you're you're weakened from overcoming your own. You know, I'll leave it at that. I think I made the point. Yeah, you also I, I agree, guys, guys, guys. I lost you for a while there. Um, it probably helped. So we just kept on. No, I don't think so. It seemed like it started re-recording when I got back in. Oh. So I must it's have been recording the whole time on ours. Yeah. On, it, my it Zoom, it said recording. It will still okay. be in uh, it will still be in the uh like in if you log into Zoom. No uh, worries. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, All right. On your laptop. Okay. Back to Brandon. Sorry. Oh, no problem. And you're five minutes in a hard stop, Alex? Uh fuck it. I'm just gonna go over. Whatever. Okay. Um, so I, I agree mechanic, your, your point essentially that, well, okay. One point is I don't think we should straw man, uh, psychedelics or cannabis or opiates to the all day, everyday user. Right. We agree that that's bad. Um, I think what's interesting with psychedelics is I think that they are unique among the compounds, most noble, as you put it, but the, the risk with that is we do not look at them with a critical eye because they're considered so good. Right. And I think the reality is they're 51% good, um, not not 99% good, which is what um, the New York Times would publish today. And so mm -hmm. I think having a healthy balance is the right approach here. Um, yeah. And, and then another point on ego you mentioned. So, Alex, just to catch you up, we said psychedelics make you more feminine. I agree. But I also agree that having a taste of what that is temporarily is useful for a masculine frame when you're on the ground a week later. Uh, mm -hmm. And with ego, I feel very similarly, um, losing your ego on a day-to-day -day basis is horrible. Uh, it's, it's necessary. It's good to have a strong ego. It protects you from criticism. It allows you to conquer the world against all odds and ha be, have courage, et cetera. Um, but temporarily stepping out of a personal pronoun state, I, me, my, tasting the infinite, getting gobsmacked by the cosmos, awe and wonder. Um, I think that that has profound pro-social effects on individuals. Not always, not everyone, not every time. 
But that is a very uh, useful pursuit to have here. And I personally feel that I'm, I have way more mastery over my ego after dis- dissolving it and coming back. I, I feel that it's the goal is not to have no ego or have a strong ego. The goal is to be able to consciously expand or contract your ego, expand and contract your empathy, right? Like my empathy starts in my household. It's, it's never ending within these four walls. A little bit in my neighborhood, less so in my city, non-existent at the country level, right? And I think being able to modulate those things is the key. Um, and I, I think I am a better husband and lover, father TBD, because that's only two months in, but with these tools. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I heard um, Mechanic talk about that earlier. And just as I was about to make my comment, um, I was saying thank you, thank you, thank you for um, bringing it up. Um Yes, th- th- this whole this whole uh, decision to discuss this stuff actually came off the back of a tweet that I uh, supported from Jer, the you know the guy who writes about Frame, um, and I think he's fucking one of the best writers in the entire, probably the best writer in the entire masculine space by far, and um, and he he did a tweet about like uh, you know psychedelics um, basically made. Paraphrasing, but psychedelics basically make men feminine, and and I supported that, and there was this whole little fucking Twitter war over it. Do you think and that's a temporary thing or a, a long term thing, Alex? What do you mean? Uh, they make men more feminine. Is that while they're on the substance, or does it have the effect of making them more female as a person in a long term? Yeah. See, see, this 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 is interesting. I think the risk is that it may do that, particularly with um with uh, prolonged use. Um, if anything, if anything, maybe to Brandon's point is that the the being exposed to a substance that does dissolve your ego and that does um, that does basically collapse your frame because that that's what it does. It's collapsing frame. Like the 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 purpose of the masculine is to construct frame um, and to construct order, and the uh, being exposed to such a substance destructs, uh, you know, breaks down frame um, and breaks down order and makes you one with everyone. If you approach that in a way that you are looking to build frame up afterwards, um, you know, maybe once in a while you can use it as a kind of like a hormesis in a sense, um, you know, taking a little bit of poison now and again to to strengthen your frame. Um but it's it's a fucking risky thing, um, and that ties into the second thing that you mentioned, which was you know about the um, the letting demons in. And th- there's actually a lot of people that I really, really, really respect, and they're even Bitcoiners. And I won't mention their names, but you guys definitely know them, and they're really like fucking solid OG Bitcoiners, um, young guys who have just flat out told me they're like, I wouldn't touch that stuff because I think there's demons there, um, and I don't know what the you know what, what what that means, like opening up those portals. And, and they say it. Both, you know, some have said it literally, some have said it metaphorically in the sense that kind of what you said before, Mechanic, is that we, we don't really know what that is. And I think, Brandon, you probably framed it well there where it's like 51% good, 49% bad. You know, maybe it is 50-50. Like, we don't actually know. Um, there, there is, you, you did mention something before, Brandon, which I wanted to kind of pull on here, which I disagreed with. You said, you know, these substances make people sovereign individuals. And I, I would disagree with that. I don't think... I think they actually make you more susceptible to programming. And the question is, are you in an environment um, where there's strong rites of passage, where that programming is conducive towards 
um, you know, for example, making you a man um, and like, you know, the, like the ancient rites of passages were versus um, are you, you know, is, is today's programming one which conditions men to be, you know, weak and pathetic and dependent, etc. And, you know, is the use of these substances in the modern age going to open people up and make them more susceptible to such programming? And I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I suspect that the answer may be that, um, that it is actually slightly more on the bad side here um, because of that, which... Maybe it doesn't make sense to, to try and use a mathematical to describe it mathematically, but just to leave it at the idea of acknowledging that it can do both. Like the psychedelics mm -hmm, can, mm -hmm. can break conditioning really well. And they can also mm -hmm. put you in a state where you are incredibly uh, susceptible to cult-like brainwashing, which is why cults would engage in it and, you know, give you a bunch of mushrooms and then start showing you some sacred text as, you know, nonsense. So I, I think it just makes sense to say it can definitely do both. And I'm very mm -hmm. worried you know, I'm sure, Brandon, you've heard of, like, I've heard of shaman, right, that will sexually abuse women in the middle of the ayahuasca ceremony and stuff like that. And guess what? They've had their egos and boundaries dissolved, and they're kind of more open at that time. And, you know, he can sort of, with some plausible deniability, say, hey, she was up for it. You know, she was all over me. Like, I've heard of these stories, and it's not uncommon. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's an enormous amount of trust that that's not actually strictly to do with psychedelics. That's just to do with people taking advantage of other people while they're in those states. And, you know, but yeah, sorry. I don't know why I brought that up exactly, but yeah. Brandon, Can I respond to that one on programming? So I think that that's, this is an important one. Um, so first on programming, just to underline what you just said, mechanic, it breaks conditioning during that's a hugely useful thing. Dissolve boundaries, deprogram, de et cetera, then you are in a vulnerable state afterwards to rebuild, right? And that's actually the, the, the magic, because if you want to break an addiction, if you want to change your personality, it's really nice to loosen the grip on your repetitive patterns and programs, but then it's crucial, more crucial than normal life to rebuild with the right intellectual, spiritual nutrition, to rebuild in a positive way because you are vulnerable to a bad shaman or to a cult-like behavior, et cetera. Um, but throwing the baby out the bathwater because that potential exists is silly, right? It just yeah. means it's a powerful tool that needs respect. And with regards to um, high-level context, what I've noticed in this conversation, and I think Svetsky, we had this conversation or brought this up in a previous conversation, um, a lot of what you're critiquing about psychedelics are the modern implementation of these tools, Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we dissociate the, the chemical from the context. And in this case, it's like a postmodern, um, very, very left-leaning anti-establishment, but don't even understand why groupthink, it would be like spiral dynamics, green, gone wrong, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the primary context of psychedelics today, which I wholeheartedly throw in the dumpster. I think the culture around it is not helping but that doesn't mean the chemicals aren't good, right? So if we take the long scale of context, there's been times when it's only been a once a year initiation, then, then it decentralized into the basements Then the Romans got rid of it. And then it was literally like a, a hidden underground illegal mystery. And then the witches in the Renaissance uh, continued this lineage and then it morphed again, right? And so I think, yeah, can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here and let's critique the context. 
I, I completely agree. And that was, that was beautifully put. And uh, the best way I've heard uh, someone describe the positive use case for these things before. So to push back on it, though, um, and maybe to, to draw back from what some of you were saying, my issue with it is um, I've had trauma in my life before where I've taken psychedelics in order to get over them. And it didn't work. It did make me more uh, more brave in delving into some painful stuff that I couldn't, you know, face before. It made me delve into it, but it didn't fix it. And if I'm honest with myself, what I'm left with, and this is what I, maybe I'm just projecting, but this is what I see of all of the ayahuascans I've hung out with uh, and, you know, talked about their trauma and spent ceremony after ceremony talking about, you know, sexual abuse and all the things in their past that have happened, is that this is the problem that I see. It's that you can go into your own pain and suffering and you can indulge in it without fixing it because there's an element to fixing something that requires um, mind over matter, let's call it. And <clears throat> when I ultimately did fix the one thing that was fucking me up in my head for years, it was just sitting down with a good friend and talking to him. And that was it. We, neither of us were high or anything like that. It was just, you know, it was a Friday night sitting down on a sofa I just started talking about something that was really bothering me. I let it off my chest, and it was just gone after that, finally. But the psychedelics, they didn't work. They made me delve into it, but they made me wallow in it. And this is, mm -hmm. this is again, to bring it back to the context of society today, v victim mentality is the ultimate uh, way to sabotage everything about your, what you do in your life and who you are. If you believe you are a victim, it... it you can stay in that mentality forever and you will be pushed to stay in that mentality because politicians benefit from it. If they tell you, <clears throat> you know, everything is someone else's fault, vote for me and I'll punish them. Like most people will fall for that because no one really wants to take personal responsibility for anything. You know, they do secretly, but they're not encouraged to, and they shouldn't need to be encouraged. So there's that whole paradox. But so I would say, uh, ideally, again, yeah, like what you said, Brandon, is beautiful, and I wish it worked that well. I don't think it does in practice because the majority of people I've met, while I respect their openness and uh, their commitment to, to something, I, I don't even know if I want to go that far, though. I would just say I respect people sitting down with me and telling me about intense trauma in their past that was too painful for them to talk about, and now they're high on ayahuasca. They're opening up about it and talking about it. But I've, I always talk to these people and I go back to Richard Bandler, the father of NLP, who said, mm -hmm. you know, if you've gone to a therapist and it's, you know, session number 48, your therapist is... You're fucked up, yeah. He said, if, you, if I can't yeah. cure you in three minutes, he was, his whole approach was someone comes to me and says, I'm depressed. I say, how do you know? And then they go, um, well, because I'm this and that and the other. He's like, oh, so you've decided you're depressed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, things evidence of depression and you know and he says look if you don't walk out of here in 15 minutes realizing that you're just wrong and that you're like then i haven't done my job and i just want you to come back every week and keep lining my pockets and the ayahuascans i'm there and I, i'm trying not to make this about the human i'm trying to keep it about the substance but i can't stray away from what the humans were doing with the substance which was just indulgence and using their own pain in a masturbatory sense and they have no interest in actually healing their trauma. They just want to stay in Narnia because it's so fun and there's no responsibility whatsoever. So 
I think I think in certain cases, people have taken psychedelics, they've broken through into trauma, they've unwound the lies that led to them becoming an alcoholic or or, or whatever pain and suffering they had in the past. But for, for, for some reason, I can't really ascertain. Uh, it, they don't continue like they're serious about actually tying the bow and making that problem fixed. They stay in that area because every single shaman I've ever met says, you're still sick. You need to come back next Saturday and do another mm -hmm. ceremony. And because they never want to let you actually finish healing and you never really want to admit to yourself that you finished healing. There, there is a time for healing and medicine, but you don't spend your life in a spiritual hospital, even if there is, you do need to go there at some point. So, Again, I'm muddled in my thinking. I apologize for sort of rambling. No, no, no. That, that, yeah, I think that's really good um, in terms of – thank you for bringing up Bandler because when I was young – and this is why I don't believe in depression is that depression is, is – I've always said depression is not something you have, it's something you do, um, yeah. and it's a decision you make. It's simple, simple as that. Break that habit as well. That's, that's sort of the point, though. It can break the habit because it can make you realize where it comes from. I do believe psychedelics are very useful for breaking habits – but uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, yeah. Do you know what? I'll throw something in there. I've, of all of my experience, I, I don't think they've ever helped me break a habit or, um, or, you know, solve a trauma or anything like that, because I guess number one, I don't believe in trauma. Um, you know, I think that's also a modern psychological scam. Um, you know, I sort of sit with a school of more like, um, what, uh, what's his name? Um, Ah, uh, who's that? Other, who's the third psychologist? There was, uh, there was Freud, there was uh, Viktor Frankl, and there was oh Adler, Alfred Adler. You know, he's he's positioned that trauma is um, basically a a lie, um, and the the only every action we perform is not by virtue of a previous trauma. Um, it is actually fulfilling a need and a desire that we want. So, so it's actually more akin to um to to NLP. And so for me, I've never actually had a breakthrough what what i have had in my experiences is um is sort of i guess a deeper level of um introspection and maybe some moments of um like some some epiphanies or some some pieces have come to maybe pieces have come together i don't know like i've you know or, or i've had these um notions of a previous connection with um with land or a previous connection with you know maybe you know a lineage or something like that so, so something like you know perhaps a connection to i don't know something deeper higher more profound or whatever but but it's never been a a way for me to solve a problem i've always solved problems way better um in a in a, in a sober state by by fucking far well, let, um, let me put that to brandon like as a question I, I think that on paper, to be as harsh as possible, I think on paper, everything you said is correct there about the ability to heal trauma. And let's say specifically that uh, trauma is real, even if it's incorrectly characterized. Like if you've seen someone get blown up in Afghanistan or something, and every time someone drops a piece of cutlery, it makes you have a heart attack, like when you're back home. That's, that, that's an anchor. That's not a trauma. That's an anchor. Yeah, for Very sure. Different. But then we're, then we're debating what it technically is. Like it's definitely a condition where people, it's a thing that it would be better if someone wasn't suffering from, right? Um, yeah, like, but you can, you, can, you can collapse an anchor in fucking 15 minutes with a bit of NLP. You can, so do you think that's 
possible with psychedelics, even. Like, even if people don't usually do it that way, if, do you think that's at least possible? Maybe. I mean, I get, I, if I assume the studies are real um, or if the studies are accurate. Um, but, but, but it's always hard to, I, I think these empirical studies of subjective interpretations of people's own minds are very, um, you know, tenuous at best. Like, how the fuck do you measure if someone feels better? Like, hey, bro, I feel better. Um, is it the endorphins talking? I don't fucking know. Yeah, which is why I don't really credit like big studies with anything more than proscience mm-hmm. can provide us. Like, totally. So, question to Brandon is um, just so I can stop grandstanding and try and learn something. Um, <laughs> I've I've read, you know, to open my mind. I needed to take some mushrooms before this, obviously. But um, no, my question, Brandon, is um, I know the the purported benefits uh, that you listed off there, and they are fantastic. And you know my concern that they can be used as a crutch or by people that aren't really intending to get better that just want to masturbate and wallow in their own pain and depression because it's fun and get high at the same time. Like that's on the worst possible description of it and the most narrow-minded description. So in your experience then, just pure bro science fashion, do you know of people that have had issues um, that have anchors, we'll call them instead of triggers, that they've managed to get rid of and improve in their life uh, as a result of psychedelic therapy, as opposed to just work that they did when they weren't actually high or something like that. Uh, do, do you know of, like, do you have anecdotal uh, confirmation of this effect? Yes, absolutely. Um, but first on bro science, bro science is, it's a funny term, but in, in case that's a new term for anyone, we're, we're using it as a term of endearment. Like I observed it, it's common wisdom. It's clearly true until you must have really strong evidence to show me otherwise. Right. And it's a very good anecdote to scientism, which is like politically motivated uh, abuse with data. Um, and so bro science is like a nice, you know, it's more or less common sense. And so have I seen people overcome major trauma with psychedelics? Yes. Um, but before I give an anecdote, one caveat is that well people which I consider most of my friends and family who I associate with, there is not major traumas that are um, grossly affecting their life. Right. And so when I, when I talk about improvements in my life, these are subtle things. These are, I can be more silly and more playful. I don't have to be serious all the time. Right. I can take off the personal responsibility backpack once in a while so that I can see more clearly. I can be more empathetic. I can, not be blinded by ego and rage and like take a pause before I react. Those are things I've integrated that you wouldn't say I had, uh, I was a PTSD suffering veteran and now I'm, I'm cured, right? They're subtle. Now, one example of a guy I met in Costa Rica, we became friends. He was an army ranger sniper, many confirmed kills, highly trained, totally fucked in the head. And he comes home and he's watching all his brothers in, in arms uh, kill themselves. He's like, this tattoo, this tattoo, this tattoo, this tattoo, they're all dying. And he went down to Costa Rica and did a surf retreat that combined ayahuasca. And whether it was surfing, ayahuasca, both, neither, whatever, he he found some relief from his PTSD and more or less recommitted his life to helping other brothers in arms have a similar experience. And 
I wouldn't say the guy went from like sinner to saint, like a, a 180, but it gave him perspective. It gave him um, the capacity to go on and not take his own life. And it reoriented him in life into some higher purpose, which is helping people like him with similar uh, afflictions. And it's really hard to dismiss that. It's really hard to dismiss these the studies. The small studies on psychedelics are pretty much bro science. They give you a drug and then you say, how did you feel? Check in later. How did you feel? Um, it's not like big science. These are psychedelic people asking questions and it is slippery, right? The mind is slippery. Our subjective experience is slippery. Um, but I think the bro science would say that these are good, but they're, they're risky and you, they have to be uh, approached appropriately. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Yeah, it's fantastic to hear the actual confirmation of that because for me, like my own ignorant perspective on it, Svesky, you should respond to that, by the way, you know, what Brandon said. I'm just going to give my perspective quickly or my experience rather, which has been psychedelics for me were fun more than they were anything else. And then that caused me to love them and, uh, you know, uh, proselytize about how wonderful they are and combine that with sort of emergent newspaper wisdom about actually these things are good for curing PTSD and <laughs> two became conflated in my head and I haven't really had real confirmation in, you know, if there's a white coat involved, I don't trust it. That's basically my heuristic now. And I'm saying, I realized the charm right healed was done not on psychedelics. And that surprises me because I haven't even realized that until today. And <laughs> the psychedelics were just great fun and something I thought was wrongly vilified and that everyone should do. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I can, I can relate to exactly what you just said there because that was, that was my thing as well. Was the, I, I was so fucking anti drugs all my life when I was young, um, all throughout my twenties. I mean, I, the, the first time I tried weed was thirty, like that. That's later than most people. Um, and the first time I tried psychedelics was thirty two. Um, and that period between thirty to thirty two was when I, you know, obviously became more radicalized, really went deep down in Bitcoin, anti-state, anti-government and all that sort of stuff. And I think, yeah, my somewhere in my mind, I conflated, um, you know, the, the goodness of psychedelics as a function of its, um, you know, banishment by the government, right? It's illegalization. And, you know, mix in with that, like at that, you know, I was still listening to idiots like Tim Ferriss and Michael Pollan and all that sort of stuff um, back then. I shouldn't say Michael Pollan's an idiot. Tim Ferriss is uh, Michael Pollan less so. But um, the you know, I, I kind of, as you said, I, I got caught up in that. But I, I want to because my my first one was like literally by myself on a um, on an island uh, just off the coast of Bali, um, and I went and just. Just literally just out of curiosity, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm here. It's a, for me, it was more the magic moment in the sense that not, not the, the magic of the mushroom, but the uniqueness of the moment, like a story that I could tell later was like my first pop, my virgin, you know, pop my cherry virgin experience with this was a sunset on a fucking Island by myself listening to some music. Um, and it was, a, uh, you know, th- there was lots of thinking, lots of introspection, um, but yeah, you know, t- to your point, it was, a, it felt very good. Um, and then the second experience I had was a sexual experience with this girl. And, you know, we had this interesting soundtrack where we kind of melded with the soundtrack and I felt like, you know, we'd 
you know, the sexual experience, we, we fucked for like two hours. Um, and we went to fucking ancient, uh, Persia and all sorts of fucking shit, you know, through the experience. Um, and then came back and there was just something about it. Um, and yeah, I kind of then went down the whole, you know, rabbit hole. Um, and looking back on it now, yeah, I know I don't really have a point here except to maybe echo what you said is, um, I think I tangled all of it up. It feels incredible. And, Mm -hmm. but, uh, the other stuff, it might be a stretch, but I'm really happy to have Brandon confirm it. Like, don't get me wrong. I want to live in a world where we have these God given substances that can cure a guy who's suffering from severe PTSD. And they might be that, but I want to make sure that they definitely are that and that, uh, we're not, um, you know, uh, you know, making a mockery out of what it is they're struggling with by offering these things. And like, that's what Tim Leary did, right? You know, everything was so bad. And you're just saying, here, take this, it will fix everything. And I used to love Yeah, that. well, th- th- this is this is the danger. Like, I mean, I, I have at least a, you know, a respect for things like, you know, mushrooms and, you know, I've never tried LSD, but you know, there, there's an extension there because it is a, you know, relatively direct derivative. I, I think there's a big danger with things like ketamine and MDMA and all that shit. You know, there's all these so-called fucking doctors who left traditional medicine and have gone to alternative medicine. There, there, there was this woman who was one of the people like recommended to me to speak to. And I, I trolled her, sorry, I, I scrolled her um, Instagram for a little bit and some of the shit in there, I was like, Oh my fucking God. And, like things like, you know, uh, you know, what, what is marriage? Marriage is just, uh, love with rules. You know, we should get like stupid shit like that. You know, when you see that kind of NPC crap and, you know, lo and behold, um, she apparently treats people now with ketamine and I don't fucking agree with any of that shit because that stuff, um, for me is just literally what I said earlier is like, it's, it's creating a larger cushion around, the the problems that people perceive that they have, which are not really problems, they're just fucking, um, you know, a lack of meaning and a lack of purpose, um, and and a, and a lack of uh, being in touch with reality. So, in essence, what we're doing is we're um, compounding the problem. But anyway, yeah. I want to I want to tie this whole tendency to um, to to wallow in trauma. Unfortunately, what the things that psychedelics permit. Um, maybe in concert with the fact that they allow you to heal from it as well. Uh, and I hope that's true. And I, I suspect that it might be. And uh, Brandon's anecdote is reflective of a lot of people's experience. And I'm, mm. I'm going to be optimistic on that one. Um, but yeah, I know people that will just, you know, be 35 years old and crying about their mom, like, oh, my mom did this when I was seven and she didn't buy me that, that toy I wanted. And, you know, and I'm saying, like, I'm gonna. I want to slap you and tell you that get uh, like everyone that ever achieved anything great had a whole bunch of horrible shit happen to them. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Get the fuck over it. Like stop thinking about it. Like literally, you don't need to go somewhere for three weeks and you know and cry about something. Like because you're doing this to yourself at this point, and psychedelics can help you realize that. But at some point, you have to. Your ego has to step in and go. You are better than this. Why are you still crying like a little child? You're a 30 year old man. Get over it. Whatever your mom and dad did to you when you were six or something like that, get the fuck over it and stop wallowing in it. And that, I don't find that that sort of big brother 
you know, rough dad advice, you know, that's rough play and no one is going to do that for you. Psychedelics, mm -hmm. the, the feminizing opposite end of it, which is let's treat it with maximum respect. Care and love. Yeah. yeah. Like we'll, we'll care for you and we'll all like hug you and all that stuff. And unless sometimes you need the opposite, you need a slap and you need some hardship. And, um, I don't, uh, it's just not, it's not that it, again, it's like what teachers don't understand about boys. They're like, all these boys need to be on Ritalin. They won't sit down at a desk for eight hours a day. I don't understand what's wrong with them. We need to put them on drugs. And it's like, again, it's like someone's acting up. They're traumatized. Like punch them in the face. That'll fix it. Like a punch mm -hmm. in the face will do so much more for you than eight months of psychedelic therapy. Sometimes I'm saying. So maybe, <laughs> Well, maybe don't have a little boy sit in a school for eight hours and think that's totally. the natural state of a seven-year-old. That's nonsense. Um, totally. I want to comment on the the one point that I'm taking away from here, mechanic, is you've explained the delusion and the the trap that exists with psychedelics extremely well. And five years ago, I would have fought you so hard on that, and I would have been wrong um, because that delusion exists and. It's very seductive. Um, mm. It feels like, yeah, beware, honor, and wisdom. That summarizes it. It's super, super, super important. Um, and I guess I, do that one. I call it Narnia, where people go down to Peru for, to drink ayahuasca for a week. And then eight months later, they're still there. They spent all their life savings. They don't want to go back. They've got maybe like a teenager back home that they're just totally neglecting. And it's like, what was even the reason you came here again? Like, I'm really glad you agree on that point because it's... Yeah, yeah, that's pure indulgence. And what I don't know is, is that a potential stepping stone to a more deeper exploration where that person would never have said yes to a hard experience that would have improved their life? They would have only said yes to the Narnia version. And then halfway down that rabbit hole, they realize that there's something more to pursue on a more serious level, right? I'm open to that being true. And I, I would probably say that it is. Um, but I think that we shouldn't evaluate these as if they're a panacea, right? Just because it doesn't solve everything all the time for everyone, that's not really saying much, right? I, I think it was mm. Wade Davis or someone who said it's a non-specific amplifier. That's what they are. And I think that that's right. They don't do one thing. Um, so much of it is what you bring to the table and the context in which you're consuming it. And again, it feels like we're fighting against the... The people who are adopting psychedelics today, that's who we're fighting against more so than the tools. And so it's like culture and context are the key, not the molecules. We don't need these molecules. The only thing that they're good for is they're consistent, they're reliable, they get the job done, they're transportable, they're they're just really, really effective. But yeah, you can go fast, you can go um, dance, breathwork, yoga, darkness, pain, all these things can produce the similar insights. Um, yeah. But in modern society, we want the white pill. So I would say they're even mm -hmm. more seductive and even more risky in modern culture because we have no discipline. We have no totally. rights of initiation. We have no elders. Um, and that, that makes them uniquely risky at this point in time. Yeah. And so, totally, totally. Yeah. The current way the culture is, your last question on the email you sent us for potential topics is about being over medicated and the worst thing about it is it's just one more uh, medicine like it should like imagine if you know that thought you get when you first take mushrooms or something and you're like imagine the whole world imagine all the world's leaders on this and stuff 
And then 10 years later, you realize, yeah, everyone would just be dead within five minutes. Like if, if, if Joe Biden took fucking acid, I don't really, I don't want to chance that. I don't know what the fuck would happen. But the point is, on a, on a more individual level, like, there's just so much medicine everywhere. And the idea that you'd need more medicine to counteract all the shit that we're doing to ourselves with all the other medicine and all the toxic food and all that. It's like, let's, let's go the other way. Let's just have everyone actually be sober. Like to take it back to Huxley, like what's everyone in Brave New World is all fucked up on Soma, right? Like, and it's just, mm-hmm. just all day. And it's like, I think people have told me that he was talking about alcohol. That was a metaphor for alcohol. I always found it to be more of a metaphor for cannabis, but mm-hmm. either way, mm-hmm. unknown in imaginary drug that it's like, yeah, everyone just takes this now. And then you go to America and it's like, here's the tap water. It's got lithium and Prozac and like everything else just in the tap water because this stuff doesn't. <laughs> it's like people pee it out. Like it's full of estrogen from women taking the pill as well. Like we're just on a massive mishmash of chemicals and stuff. And I'm like, I just want to be sober. Like there's nothing that beats waking up in the morning with a fresh head and like intact boundaries and like all this stuff. I'm like, this is fantastic. I want more of this, you know? So mm-hmm. but it's not preach sobriety you know and it's one of those biblical wisdom things again it's like no go to church have a clean head that's all we ask of you and it's so surprisingly effective and i guess it's like a yeah like my final word on the thing would just be like get yourself into a place where you want to take as few mind-altering substances as possible and that you have as little need for them as possible and the, your biggest obstacle along the way is how fun these mind-altering substances are, which is, you know, like, imagine if chemotherapy was fun. Like, imagine if you took chemotherapy and you sat down and a tree just started flowing and breathing and you saw its leaves move in the wind and it was beautiful. And it, There's going to come a point where it's like, you need to stop taking it. It's bad for you and you're not going to want it because it's so fun. So, yeah, that would be my final advice on it, just... The point is, it's at, at the very, very least, take these things as though they are medicine. And the point with medicine is to heal, get better, and then leave the hospital. And that's it. Like, don't try and live your life in the hospital. That's not the way to be. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Brandon, I might give you final thoughts. And then, um, and then I might say a quick comment as a final thing to go away and think about. Um, because we're going long, uh, long enough and then, um, and then wrap this up. Yeah. I think my, my initial comment early on was that we're framed up as having opposing views and we're going to end the conversation right in the middle. And mm-hmm. I think that that's absolutely true. I couldn't agree more with what you just said there at the end. It's like tools, use them with restraint and discipline. And in a modern context, that's really challenging. And I think it was an Naval quote. I'm roughly paraphrasing what I took away, but it's essentially in a world with abundant food, fasting, restraint, self-discipline, that's the mm-hmm. medicine. In a world with infinite scrolling dopamine, the person who unplugs the, gets off the bird app, that's the, the power. In a world with drugs everywhere, sobriety is actually the medicine. And I, I actually think that that's a really good framing. It also ties back to my comment about things being cyclical right? Psychedelics are re-emerging. They're going to be institutionalized very clearly. It's going to go too far and it's going to be a problem. And then there's going to be this counter surge, maybe in our lifetime, maybe in a hundred years. And so I I think taking the long view is helpful here. Um, And also trying to differentiate between personal experience and what's generalizable about these substances. 
And throughout history, it's been very hard to make strong, uh, generalizable statements about these drugs. And that is why our earlier cultures put so many boundaries around them, because they probably had the same, they had a podcast, you know, 20,000 years ago with Pythagoras and some other some other dude saying, you know what, we can't just give these to everyone. They're not prepared. We have to mm-hmm. give them the initiation. And so I think I think we're in the same boat now. And yeah, I think it's good to have mature conversations about this because the zeitgeist of the of today is that they're they're wonder drugs. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. yeah, having balance and reverence for these tools serves us. And yeah, I appreciate the chance to chat with you guys. I really enjoyed this. Very well put. Yeah. Very well put. I wanted to say one thing as well that it was funny. Uh, I know it's that was perfectly ended. Cut this bit out, but I have to get off my chest anyway. <clears throat> if you speak to any therapist that uses one particular drug, listen to what they say about all the others they don't use, because it's all pretty much true. So my perspective on cannabis comes from the ayahuasca shaman I used to speak to, and everything they said about cannabis is true. And you know this idea of it being seductive, and you know that great thing you had when you were high that one time. You remember that, right? Do you remember that 8,000 times more times you got high after that when nothing happened? That's because you got seduced by a succubus. You got a little bit of wisdom, and then that was it. You were cannabis's bitch after that. It took me 10 years to figure that out, and it was true, and I realized it wasn't doing anything for me. But I still remember those beautiful little times where I got high and I made a good song or something like that. But then go and listen to the Rastas and ask them about ayahuasca, and then go and listen to the people that treat using peyote and ask them about ayahuasca. And they all tell the truth about the other ones. It's just the thing they have is somehow special. And like this is why I've gone back to that sobriety. Is I love what you said, Brandon. Um, and I do think we have come full circle and uh, we basically agree on all the heavy furniture here. And in the modern world of instant dopamine hits and all this stuff, sobriety and the ability to not look at a screen or to be intoxicated for a prolonged period of time is unbelievably healthy and something that most people could never help hope for because they just want another pill to fix it and psychedelics is going to become that uh, and you're right it's going to become institutionalized and bastardized and like the, we're not like Svetsky and people like that aren't 1950s Americans thinking it's all degenerate bad stuff it's it's something else it's it's going to be a new way for people to say hey wait a minute there's a time where we used to just be sober so I mean it's worrying right but anyway, sorry. I had to get- <laughs> no, all good. All good. All good. Um, I, I was going to leave us with some thoughts, but I think, um, I think I'm going to keep these thoughts and questions for the next podcast because then it's going to encourage people to jump onto the third part of this installment um, or third installment of this series. Um, so I think, yeah, gentlemen, thank you so much. You know, what, one thing for me that is a big takeaway from this and that, you know, was one of my takeaways and what I was writing about this just further reinforces it is that um, maturity, you know, is critical uh, for, for just about anything we're doing in life. And I think, you know, the world is more immature than it's ever been. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe there is a, is a, is a place for this stuff, but, you know, what we need to think about is like what are the actual costs um, because there's a cost to every decision and what are the risks? Um, and I think, you know, we outlined some of the risks of like, you know, being programmable, being susceptible and all that sort of stuff. You know, there, there's costs like, you know, what happens when you uh, open up your apertures, um, you know, with such substances, you know, what, what do you let in? You know, what do you not? Um, you know, what what does it use up? You know, may, maybe it uses up a vital force and we don't even fucking know. Um, you know, so, so like generally, 
you know, I think uh, the, the older I get, the more conservative um, I try and be. And I think there is a excessive, the, the supporters of the usage of these things, you know, are excessively liberal in nature. And I think taking a conservative approach is the right way uh, to look at these things. And, I, and I'm glad that, you know, I don't sound like a fucking old asshole among you guys in discussing this and particularly yourself, Brandon, because, you know, this is where I place you in the category of, you know, like I said to Vallis yesterday, it's like the exceptions to the norm is someone who has done it for quite a while, but has actually emerged more conservative off the back of it. um, As opposed to, you know, the norm, which seems to be, you know, people flowing the other way, you know, the, the slippery slope is the other side and you've kind of climbed out of that, which is, um, which is very encouraging to see. So thank you both for, um, for taking the time for this. Really means a lot. Welcome, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. That was great. Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them each week and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating plague that is consuming our world.